back with the very last habit book yes. for this year i hope yeah <laughs> or forever um, <laughs> i can't do any more habits, yeah. habits habits um, um yeah. so today is hooked by near eol i think is how you pronounce the name and this is around habits and how to build uh, habit forming products so this takes the angle more of how um technology companies use uh habit frameworks to get us addicted to technology and also provides a blueprint for how you can create you know applications or websites or whatever it is that you want to do which might induce somebody to create a habit around what you want them to do um and i have to say it was it's one of the one of the more practical books i think we've read around habits as well and i think Mm. If you if you're somebody who's listening who's listened to all our other habit reviews, you'll recognise a bunch of frameworks which we've already you know spoken about, such as the BMAP, which um, Nier uses for his his um, hooked framework, um, which we I think we discussed last time, wasn't it? Because we did have yeah, tiny yeah, habits yeah. last week. Um, so yeah, if you've been listening to all these habit books, this should be a sort of um, another stepping stone. Like you'll recognise half these ideas. There's nothing real, really too new here apart from um you know how this all applies to creating a product it, it precisely yeah i think up until now all the books have kind of focused on either the like you know mechanisms that underpin habits or like how you an individual can use them and now this is kind of like if you were to apply them to something apply these lessons to something to like a product to some kind of well whatever um but yeah so it was quite i liked it from like the fact that it was slightly different, obviously, we had, we've been reading a lot around the same topic. Um, so it introduced some variability there. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, sweet. Let's just jump straight into it because we've got a lot of notes for this book. Yeah. So habits and products. Forming habits is imperative for the survival of many products. As infinite distractions compete for our attention, companies are learning to master novel tactics to stay relevant in users' minds. Amassing millions of users is no longer good enough. Companies increasingly find that their economic value is a function of the strength of the habits they create. In order to win the loyalty of their users and create a product product that's regularly used, companies must learn not only what compels users to click, but also what makes them tick. Um, I mean, this is, you know, kind of the modus operandi of Facebook, of TikTok, of Instagram, um, yeah, yeah. their literal sole survival of their business is keeping people on their platform scrolling um, because it's one of the things that obviously generates them the most revenue because um, their their business models are built upon uh, advertisers spending money on their platforms. They need people to be on their platforms to be able yeah. to see the advert. So it's as simple as that. Um, and in fact, to be fair, if you really think about most, if not all technology companies, they solely revolve around people repeatedly using the app you know so exactly i think that's pretty key isn't it the the repetition isn't it like if you're an app that gets used once every six months then you know you're not really going to build a habit whereas these you know 
people oh, yeah. are on it five, six, seven, multiple times a day. Yeah. Um, and so you want to be able to make that process as simple as possible and easy as possible. So that kind of like facilitates that habit forming process. Um, exactly exactly that so instead of relying on expensive marketing habit forming companies link their services to the user's daily routines and emotions a habit is at work when users feel a tad bored and instantly open twitter for example they feel a pang of loneliness and before rational thought occurs they are scrolling through their facebook feeds or a question comes to mind before searching their brains they query google the first uh first to mind solution wins and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of those things we just, what I just said, then people can probably relate to. I don't know about mm-hmm. you, but the amount of times I've, you know, come up with a question and just Google it immediately without yeah, even yeah. thinking to like just contemplate it a bit more, you know? Yeah. And straight away, it's like, all right, I'll just look look on Google. You know, yeah. or, or I'm feeling a little bit bored now, right? Next thing you know, you're scrolling on your phone because it's just a way of relieving that boredom. Exactly. And like, the, you know, it becomes our new default. Um, which can, you know, sometimes it can help, sometimes it can be detrimental. But um, the fact is it just like speeds up that process. You know, we want we want an answer, we want a solution, and we kind of will turn to anything that speeds that kind of process up a little bit um, or satisfies our desire. And, yeah, in this case, all of those have kind of taken that um, upon themselves. So, like, Facebook, YouTube, Google, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so jumping into introducing the hook model. So a four-phase process companies use to form habits. The model is intended to be a practical tool rather than a theoretical one, made for entrepreneurs and innovators who aim to use habits for good. I love it. Sorry, just to jump in here. I love I love how his whole thing's about, like, you need to use habits for good. I, I, yeah. like, I, I get obviously I why he's putting it, but so many people have used these these ideas for, like, bad and nefer- like fair yeah. purposes. Um, but anyway... <laughs> literally like and i think he talks about it in the book doesn't he like how you know they essentially they want your attention the whole time and it's not like that is healthy you shouldn't your attention shouldn't constantly be going to every fucking notification that comes through and most of the time it's for some irrelevant purpose but for them they're making money so you know they're winning but it's not necessarily a healthy thing or good um but yeah it's just quite funny um, through consecutive hook cycles, successful products reach their ultimate goal of unprompted user engagement, bringing users back repeatedly without depending on costly advertising or aggressive messaging. So the first is trigger. So a trigger is the actuator of behavior, the spark plug in the engine. Triggers come in two types, external and internal. Habit-forming products start by alerting users with external triggers like an email, a website link, or the app icon on a phone. And just just to jump in as well with this, the triggers, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if it was exactly the same terminology with the BMAP. Uh, Prompt, wasn't it? Prompt Prompt, or stimulus. There you go. Basically the same thing here. And obviously with the James Clear's, you know, laws of behavioral change, make it obvious or make it invisible. This is exactly the same thing. The trigger, make it easy, uh, make it obvious or make it invisible. I quite like how he talks about the process of it originally starting as an external kind of trigger and then that becoming linked with your like emotions and things to become more integral. Um, Yeah, I quite like that. Uh, So the second one is action. So following the trigger comes the action, the behavior done in anticipation of a reward. This phase of the hook draws upon the art and science of usability design to reveal how products drive specific user actions. Companies leverage two basic pulleys of human behavior to increase the likelihood of an action occurring. 
the ease of performing an action and the psychological motivation to do it. And there um, you go. We've, you know, one thing we discussed is before, make it easy yeah. or make it hard in James mm-hmm. Clears. And then also we discussed it last week, the t- um, tiny habits with the, you know, the, being motivated to do things and obviously being able to do something as well, obviously helps the action take. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, he's talking here about usability, usability is solely around how easy is something to do? Is it obvious? Is it usable? I mean, that's that's where the word comes from. Yeah, 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 exactly. The ability and motivation, you know, if something requires a lot of motivation to do it, well then you're less likely to do it. Um, And you'll still be below that kind of curve that we went over last week um the third one is variable reward so what distinguishes the hook model from a plain vanilla feedback loop is the hook's ability to create a craving feedback loops are all around us but predictable ones don't create desire add some variability to the mix and voila intrigue is created variable variable rewards are one of the most powerful tools companies implement to hook users i'm trying to think of any examples at the moment um just off the top of my head can you think of any just a, ver- a variable Exam- reward though? example of variable reward would be <clears throat> in the in the context is technological like like an application sorry would yeah. be uh the news feed and the fact that when you you know when you refresh it gives you variable yeah. like it gives you different content and therefore it it's varied and you're not you know it's the same with the tiktok algorithm and stuff you you know you're swiping down sometimes you find a video that's funny immediately or like that gets your interest sometimes you you don't so yeah and that keeps you scrolling again because you're like oh could it be this video that's going to be really funny or could it be you know another boring one you just keep scrolling until you find one that's nice or find one that you know keeps you engaged precisely Um, yeah um yeah because it's interesting it's not like i remember when they changed that whole thing of like being just chronological which my mind liked because it was like neat and organized yeah. and linear. And then they obviously introduce us like, you know, it's based on like relevance or how much you view this person or whatnot. Yeah. So there's more kind of the parameters are separated so that they can always be mixed up and there's an element of kind of variability. And then they do obviously have the explore page, which in by itself is completely yeah, but that is, like yeah. based on variability, right? And then there's Twitter do stuff now where they're like pick, because you like this page, you might like that, and they end up being on your timeline and stuff like that. Yeah, They've all got yeah. these little tips and tricks, and and usually the variability is still related in some degree to what you already like, right? Like it's not like yeah. they're going to randomly start showing you something completely against your interests, yeah. Um, but it's still it's still you can still argue it's variable in the sense that it's different to what you've seen before. If that makes any sense, like yeah, they're no, not no, completely absolutely. changing the topic, but they give you a bit of variation within the topic that you're interested in. Let's just say you like football, they'll give you different variations of football clubs or players or something that you've never seen before. Um, yeah, which still hit that need for seeing stuff that's different, but at the same time, you know, they know. Let's just say if you're really, you, yeah, you love football and you hate rugby, they're not going to start showing you rugby stuff because your engagement no. will go down. So, exactly because it, it needs to be somewhat familiar, but also a little bit different. A little yep. bit of novelty, a little bit of variability. Um, if it's too different, then we won't engage. It's it's too far from. Well, exactly. Like. If you've got a rule in your head, like you know, I I, I don't like rugby. Let's just say, oh, I don't like this sport. I'm not interested in this sport. Showing yeah. you that is obviously not going to help their cause of <laughs> keeping you to visit the platform every day. So, exactly. Um, so number four is investment. The last phase of the hook model is where the user does a bit of work. The investment phase increases the odds that the user will make another pass through the hook cycle in the future. The investment occurs when the user puts something into the product of 
um, of service such as time, data, effort, social capital or money. The investment should aim to improve the service for the next go round. I thought that was a really good one, actually, because like we have touched on it, but not in such like a kind of explicit way whereby, you know, you double down. Once you've committed, you're more likely to follow through. You know, yeah. you've got what what's the point of you committing any of this time money and stuff if it's not actually going to last if it's not actually going to give you something back um yeah i thought this is quite an interesting point as well because it, it does tap on not explicitly one of like james clear's rules but one of his tools which was like the daily tracking so if you're doing a yeah. habit and you track it every day and you can see your progress this kind of reminds you of that a bit when you're using an app and you're seeing you know you've, you've put stuff into the app such as your photos let's just say it's harder to give up because of that like sunk cost fallacy where you know you've already put investment of time and also your data to start again it's not it's not painful but it takes effort effort which you might yeah. not want to replicate um so that reminds you of that bit a little bit. Um, and then it yeah. also is similar to in, in within this context, the same thing would be thought of like video games, you know, spending time developing a character within a video game, acquiring items, etc. cetera. You're yeah. more likely to continue because you've made the investment of time, effort, all sorts of things like that. And you've accumulated like gaming capital or whatever you want to call it yeah. within it, which would be a shame to give up. Um, but these yeah, are like exactly. psychological forces that, you know, play out on us. So absolutely. It's like, you know, we are, and we said this, timeless uh, um, timeless amounts but you know we want to conserve our energy so if we are putting our energy towards something then it better be something that gives us something back right and yes okay it may be able to give us something back in the short term but we also want it to like you know help us down the line and it's funny like you were mentioning gaming because i remember my ps no it was yeah i think i was playing like assassin's creed or something Mm -hmm. and the game wasn't like saving and so you would like play as long as you could and cu- try and keep like the PS4 like um on I remember when you so had that problem, yeah. yeah 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 and but then it would like crash and then obviously like you'd have to start again and it's kind of that you know learn oh, it's helplessness no worse. yeah it's no it's, worse. it's it's so bad because it's like well what is the point of me even trying if I'm not going to get yeah. anything back from it it's like yeah okay I might get a little bit of fun in the in the meantime but I want something no, back. I mean, and it's it's, 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 it's crazy you mention that because that's such a like big psychological force because you're right yeah maybe maybe other people who are listening might not feel the same way but if it was me and every time I was progressing towards something and then because of some unforced error I couldn't control that the game crashed and I lost that progress yeah. it would only happen have to happen about twice to me and I just give up I would never play again. yeah yeah, yeah. I would literally just be like well, what's the point I'll yeah. do it once and then obviously if it crashed again because I didn't realize it's going to consistently keep crashing. And then it did again. I'll be like, nah, there's no way. I just exactly. <laughs> and that's such a weird psychological force because it's so true. Like, is this like l- level of like, okay, I can't actually um, make progress here. I'm just going to end up like running around in circles. Therefore, I'm not even going to bother. And it's so it's like a switch, isn't it? In a weird way, like yeah. just even thinking about it, there is a point where I just go, nah, not interested. Um, and it really does tap into that kind of learned helplessness because, you know, you. Like I remember coming across the term because there was this study that was done with like dogs and they were like in um, in cages and the cages were shocked every time they tried to like leave the, um, leave the cage to the point where they just didn't try and leave the cage because every time they tried, they would get shocked. And so there'd be that punishment. And to the point where like, you know, the cage was literally open and they could just walk out and they still wouldn't do it. And they, they had to yeah. be dragged to, to be pulled out. And the same thing goes with like, you know, these kind of apps. And that's why like, you know, I think we'll talk about it later on, but the idea of getting 
users to put more and more information and time and effort and money stuff into it because you're not going to go and do that again elsewhere if i mm. suddenly upload so many photos of like my life on facebook and then i'm like oh actually i don't want to be on facebook and then i go to another app and i have to do that there again and then again in another app it's like it was it's, interesting you're just going to start doing it I, I probably i might be making this up so we can fact check it but i i remember there being a point where the the government or some legal body made it or sort of like the people who create policies made it a legal requirement for like people like Facebook to allow you to export your data with ease. I don't know if that's a hundred percent true. I, I want to say they were forced to do it because for them, yeah. if you think about it, that is a competitive advantage, not letting you be able to like press a one click button to like export all your data. But I'm pretty sure they made it a, a legal requirement for all of these companies because you could create a serious, massive uh, barrier to changing it's almost yeah. like an anti anti competitive move because you're like, I'm gonna keep all your data. You're not allowed your data back, and I'm gonna make yeah. it as hard as possible for you to take your data. Whereas I don't know if you've experienced it, but these days it's quite easy to like if you're using one software service, you can often pray like yeah. press a button and export all of your data because you own it technically because you're like lending the company the data, yeah. um, and they need to make it as easy as possible for you. But it's quite interesting because they obviously knew. Like you're saying that if you put the time and investment in, and then they made it difficult for you to then create more friction to leave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, you're obviously highly unlikely to do it unless you're really, really motivated. And the thing yeah. is, you know, I, I can hate a company and be as motivated as possible to leave it, but if it's going to take me, you know, uh, uh, like a month to just download each individual photo and then upload it somewhere else, yeah. you know, it's it, it's going to cause issues, and I'm not going to change even if I hated that company just because. It's- it is funny isn't it it's like which one wins your dislike or your laziness no, exactly that. Right? Yeah, like yeah. It, and, and it's a good point i though, would like, say instance, laziness wins out most times i would i would say so that. unless yeah. you really start to fucking hate company but yeah. like uh, it, it is a good point because i've changed browsers before so yeah. like google chrome and safari and all that lot and they do allow that so you can just export and then import yeah but this is like the, one... the point being i think it had to be a legal like, yeah, requirement yeah because they, there's I no way these companies would have thought like you know oh i'm gonna really help these people out i'm gonna help them change service from what i'm currently yeah. doing there's no way they would have been like out of the goodness of my heart i'm <laughs> yeah, gonna let you guys no, have your data absolutely not um so yeah, yeah that's funny um Okay, so on the last point here, so this model isn't for all businesses. Um, the framework and practices explored and hooked are not one size fits all and do not apply to every business or industry. Entrepreneurs should evaluate how user habits impact their particular business model and goals. While the vi- um, viability of some products depend on habit formation to thrive, that is not always the case. Um, yeah. I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory, right? Like, for example, yeah. my business, Slidify, um, <laughs> they're bulk buying for a team, sliders, right? And they're going to do this yeah. once a year, once every two years. It's not really a habit-forming product. So these ideas don't really apply um, yeah. to my business per se. Um, and to be fair, even with applications, right? Like you're saying, so uh, if they had to use an app once once every six months, I'm, I'm just trying to think of a use case where there would be an app to use it once every six months. Um, fine maybe something t- fine i got a good one uh a girl's like period tracking app they might have to use it once yeah. a month to put in when they started their period or something like that mm-hmm. that isn't really a habit forming product um because you're like like we've discussed in the previous books habit forming habit forming uh to form a habit it has to be done with high frequency right it has to be done almost yeah, yeah. every day yeah. and there has to be a, re- a reward related to it so mm-hmm. these type of applications would struggle to create habits in my head um and they probably would 
definitely uh, work better off these external triggers we're going to go on to later where, you know, getting a push notification once a month to to get them to input the data. But in my head, that isn't a habit-forming product. And therefore, these ideas are less, you know, uh, applicable. Yeah, to, to uh, I, I agree. I think it's more about like creating, they're more about creating like an association with that behavior, right? So like yeah. when you need to check, you know, when you're... Um, when your period's coming or for instance uh take like imdb i use it every time i'm like, oh, yeah. looking yeah. at a film right but it's technically i'm not looking i'm not watching films every single day but when yeah. i do it's my like go-to it's the strongest association to like finding but out stuff about that one films. in my head the reason why that works quite well is it's kind of like the it's kind of like google in a way isn't it it's like you have an itch which is you want to know more about this film yeah. you're watching and then you go search I guess originally, well, probably what you did originally was search Google, <clears> and then IMDb came up first. Do you kind of get what I mean? Yeah, the list. Probably, yeah. Often, it, often it probably does. But now, obviously, you've just got this association with. I got a question about a film. I go onto this onto yeah. this app, and then this this you know sorts out my desire to know if that makes sense. And yeah. That's how that yeah, in yeah. my head habits form because you're being rewarded by closing that like knowledge gap. You know, there's like an yeah. information gap where I want to know this answer. I'm feeling uncomfortable because I don't know the answer. Because yeah. it is kind of like that, isn't it? It's like, I've asked myself a question I don't know the answer to. I want to know the answer to it, so I feel uncomfortable until I know it. Yeah. And then obviously by by going onto IMDb and finding the answer, you're like, ah, oh, okay, nice. And that's how that, in my head, that's how that habit would become formed. Because it, On a, the frequency isn't there, but it is depending how many films you watch, right? Yeah, and that, and that's the thing. And it's, it's, it's about that relationship that is created. You don't necessarily have to engage in that relationship all the time. But if that is the strongest kind of relationship in it, you know, it, can, um, it outdoes any other. Like, yeah, I could go onto Rotten Tomatoes. It's just I don't because IMDB is – I've used that predominantly. Um, but – yeah, no, it is interesting, and I like slightly off topic, but I wonder how much like Chat GPT is going to end up being, you know, used as a kind of because yeah. it, because it's it's unlike Google. Google gives many okay, yeah, it sometimes gives like you know one answers at the top in like a kind of little paragraph, but it gives multiple answers. Whereas we're yeah. normally looking for one because we want to reduce that, like you know, the, yeah. um, I was the duration to... of the process, right? And so this only gives you, you like... one. Yeah, if right. you look at this, like the statistics of Google, um, you know, even though they give you, I guess, like twenty pages of results. First of all, people like ninety percent of people don't get past the first page. Oh yeah, and then, yeah. And then like ninety nine percent of people yeah. don't even go below the second answer. So yeah. it goes. To no, show it is true. Yeah. People, people's behavior already tells you they just want the one answer, the easiest yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. There is a big. I, I think Google are pretty scared of ChatGPT because it will help people, you know, answer certain queries immediately and give yeah. them pretty robust answers and then also allow them to adapt the answers, you know, cause you can just text it again being like, Hey, how about this? How about you turn what I just asked you into like yeah, a, yeah. into a report for 200 you know, words or something. And next thing you yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. Google can't do that. So it's, it's no, interesting. exactly. It is an interesting time. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Anyway, um, moving on. So, yes. so I, I I took a note here because I thought it was quite interesting about yeah. why uh, some good innovations fail. So, a classic paper by John Gorville, a professor of marketing at Harvard Business School, stipulates that many innovations fail because consumers irrationally overvalued the old, while companies irrationally overvalued the new. Gorville claims that for new entrants to stand a chance, they can't just be better; they must be nine times better. Why such a high bar? Because old habits die hard and new products or services need to offer dramatic improvements to shake users out of old routines. 
Gorva writes that products that require a high degree of behavior change are doomed to fail, even if the benefits of using the new product are clear and substantial. And I thought that's quite interesting. It yeah. reminds me a bit of the, I don't know if you know the case study, like the Segway, where like when the Segway first came out, mm-hmm. everybody's going to be like, this is going to revolutionize like city yeah, travel. Yeah, Nobody's yeah. going to use bikes anymore. Like yeah. Segways are going to be everywhere. And then it flopped. And there's got to be asked of like questions of like, why? <clears throat> well, because it doesn't really improve the current travel circumstances like circumstances much does it like fine yeah you know know, people who cycle tend to also get the endorphin rush of cycling you know so you're not going to replace the cyclists aren't going to replace it with segways um and people some people prefer to walk and stuff so it's just it's just interesting how you know old behaviors die hard and and then you know the such effort to change that if you're really going to try and change everybody's behavior the likelihood is it's not going to work <laughs> yeah exactly and i i think too like like we were talking about with the variability rewards too much change can be a bad thing because we like that familiarity so like a prime example here in london i don't know what it's like in paris but everyone is using these electric bikes now they're like bikes but they're just electric and yeah. everyone is using them now so it is not that much difference Everyone no, is but, used to riding a bike already, yeah, and now there's a slight change. It's the, it's the same action, right? Behavior. Like in my head, right? It's the same so, action, yeah. So, um, yeah. So that one's like almost an example for uh, keeping, because it's keeping the same habit. It's just all like making the habit easier to do. Because, yeah, I guess if you just say like, "Oh, I I love cycling," but one of the main reasons I don't like doing it sometimes is because it's hard work to go up a hill. Oh wow! Yeah. Now we've got a way to make it easy to go up a hill. So <laughs> you know, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it just goes to show you that, you know, we don't like things that are too different. Like, okay, now people have these kind of, like, electric scooters as well. Um, it's mm. not my kind of thing, but, like, you know, it's uh, it's I've, not it's too funny. it's not too far from what we used to. Yeah, I've actually found the electric scooters quite interesting because I tend to use them when I'm, like, one, when I'm, like, in a desperate rush to get somewhere quick, yeah, yeah. and it's just, it's just in front of me, and it reminds me, okay, I could use this. But I like doing it in, like, when I go on holiday, like tourist destinations. So yeah, now I yeah, live yeah, in Paris, yeah, yeah. I'd never use them. But when I was on yeah, a holiday yeah. in Paris, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I could just get on a scooter and ride around Paris. It's yeah, like yeah. sick. <laughs> but now I'm like, I'm here. I'm just like, what's the point? Like, I'm not here to sightsee. Yeah. But when you are, it's kind of like a, a cool game. No, I get that. When you're on holiday, if you get what I mean. I wonder what the data would be on like people who don't live in a city who come. How often do they use scooters? I reckon there is probably a high proportion of people who use it. It's like a holiday, yeah. you know, something fancy to do on a holiday like oh we went to this uh this city and we went on scooters like it was like yeah that's part of like your holiday story i don't know if you ever get that when you're holiday you like to do like sort of niche little things different just so you can almost feel like it's a holiday as weird as that sounds like no exactly i think like even when you know there is also that random kind of association like i don't drive a moped right but like when you go on holiday you sometimes rent mopeds like if i was to go to thailand i'd rent a moped right um because you can and it's like what everyone kind of does and it's you know some places kind of lend themselves to that i know like um like uh, barcelona does as well and so you kind of these electric scooters they're almost like a, a simpler version of that where you can find them all around the city and you don't have to like give your passport over and do all that um i wonder if that's like partly why I guess also because they're all over the place, right? So it's easy, easy access. Yeah, um, like usability and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, um, and you want to get around the city because you're sightseeing, all that kind of st- uh, stuff. Yeah, to be fair, all, I was just on that note as well. They are often strategically placed in like high tourist traffic areas, you know, yeah. so that's one of those things you know, look around. 
especially in places like Paris, where in the tourist destinations there is quite a big walk between certain areas, and you just and then you mm. see a bunch of scooters. You're like, oh, that could be something we could do, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. it just evolves from there. Um, yeah. Anyway, we should carry on. So the problem of behavior change. So altering behavior requires not only an understanding of how to persuade people to act. For example, uh, sorry. Uh, for example, the first time they land on a web page also necessitates getting to repeat behaviors for long periods, ideally for the rest of their lives. Experiments show that lab animals habituated to new behaviors tend to regress their first learned behaviors over time. To borrow a term for accounting, behaviors are lifo, like lifo, last in, first out. In other words, the habits you've got most recently acquired are also are the ones most likely to go soonest. And we kind of know this from before, um, you know, making habits stick is hard. Hence the reason why all these habit books exist. If it was easy, you know, these books to help people do it wouldn't exist. Um, no, exactly. And like what we've talked about with like, uh, was it the good habits, bad habits? The idea that you're yeah. overriding an old habit. It's yeah. not like, you know, they just... deeply ingrained, right? Like the, the, the longer exactly. you've been doing it, the more deeply ingrained it is in your nervous system. So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're essentially just trying to make that new habit stronger than the old one so that your default is now that, you know, this new habit, but that takes a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got to hear this. This this helps explain the overwhelming evidence that people rarely change their habits for long. Two thirds of alcoholics who complete a rehabilitation program will pick up the bottle and their old habits within a year's time. So, here it's clear to see the enemy of forming new habits is past behaviors and research suggests that the old habits die hard. Even when we change our routines, neural pathways remain etched in our brains, ready to be reactivated when we lose focus. This presents, uh, yeah, this presents an especially difficult challenge for product designers trying to create new lines of, uh, of businesses based on forming new habits. And this is what quite interesting where, you know, what we we're just saying there. It, it just, if you're requiring somebody to change a behavior they already have, like if it's in competition, with a, with a behavior they currently do, it's going to be even harder to make them do this new behavior. Yeah. Um, I think a reason why social media companies have done quite well is because there's plenty of times where you're sort of sat idle in your day and your mind's wandering. Yeah. So there's plenty of times for them to build associations with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I also wonder if like, you know, prior to social media, what would be our outlet you know, that would, when we were sitting uh, idle and we were bored, I, think, I reckon there were multiple things well, rather than one thing. Yeah. And so the habits that we would engage in when we were idle and bored were more variable. And so they weren't yeah. as strong as like yes. that one thing that we do now, which is go on social yeah. media, right? I, I agree. Um, so like, I think it would have based, been based upon like context and hmm. time of day. So for example, let's just say before televisions, et cetera, you might have been like, okay, it's the morning I'm, I'm commuting. Obviously you don't have a music, then you don't have a phone. You probably yeah. read the newspaper, right? Which is why the newspaper cemented yeah, yeah. themselves like a morning habit. You know, this is why all these yeah. people walking to work used to pick up a newspaper, right? In my head. So they cemented themselves as the morning habit for free time. And then maybe you read that in the future or like, sorry, in the, you know, the, mid-morning slash lunch but then you said magazines so i i convinced you used to you used to like distract yourself with these things which became obviously massively popular and obviously are decreasing now which is why everybody's saying print's dead is because yeah, yeah. over time people have stopped doing that and got yeah, new yeah. habits involving their phone but you're right yeah. i do think it is a level of um back then it was very much like probably routinized like in the morning 
it's the newspapers lunch i don't know you're with your colleagues maybe reading a magazine or something or continuing with a newspaper in the evenings back then i guess they did a tv so it'd be television right but this has changed now because your phone is always there and available and you're you're getting a news through your phone and that involves then eventually probably end up scrolling but you've cemented that now as like what you do whenever you have your mind wandering and then you repeat that throughout the whole day yeah it's not just in the morning anymore it's just whenever whenever you're bored whenever you have that freedom yeah exactly mind or whatever you just default to your phone absolutely and think about your phone is like some it's it's like on steroids with trying to get your attention think about it like you're if you're reading a newspaper there might be some headlines where you're like oh wow check that out but when you're on your phone phone as well so you open it up right and just even having because we i think we both have iphones right we just even each app is technically a different stimulus like do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like every single app is like, oh, this could be something else. Like you open your phone, like, okay, I've got a red one red next to my mail. Oh shit, I should check my mail, you know? Mm-hmm. I've got a one next to my calendar, I should check my calendar. I got 143 notifications here for something. Oh my god, like, you know, it's it's yeah. there built to remind you that there's unfinished tasks or things to be done. Exactly. You know? There's loops to be closed. Yeah. Um yeah, no, it's interesting. <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 my theory on it. And I think you're right, especially with, like you said, the whole, because you do it, the more you do it, the more you're ingraining it, right? And because it's like the phone encompasses all of this distraction media. So beforehand, it was like very separate. So it was like a newspaper was there to inform mm. you of like what was going on. Magazine was for like your hobbies or whatever. Television in the evening, it was kind of all separate. Whereas now it's all been molded into one device because yeah. you can read the news on your phone. You can watch videos on your phone. You know, you can do your magazines on your phone. You can re- you can do everything on your phone, right? Yeah, so yeah, there, yeah. therefore, it becomes the one stop shop for being, you know, the discomfort remover. Whenever you feel like bored, it's just like whoosh, the phone. Like yeah. I sometimes like to, and th- and this isn't. I'm not even on a high horse here because I'm always on my phone in the metro. But I sometimes like to like have metros where I just put it in my pocket and just watch everybody yeah, else yeah. just yeah. on their phone. And I'm like, fuck, that's like me, like 99 percent of the time. Yeah. Apart from this one time where I decide not to do it, and I'm like looking around, like Jesus Christ, like yeah, yeah. and it's is everybody is all like you know it doesn't matter about your age these days. I used to think you know old people didn't really go on their phones that much, but you see them in the metro, they're all on yeah. it. It's- yeah, every, everyone's on it. Everyone's on it, and it's it's also because everyone is engaging in the same behavior. It's like other behaviors that we used to engage in have yeah, like dwindled, talking. right? Yeah, like, like like bringing like up a conversation with you- me. like, why are you talking to me, freak? <laughs> exactly, and now you know that like most people won't do that and Mm. so that takes away another like behavior you could resort to which is engaging in chat like i it's amazing like no anyone who talks to you on the train right it's like weird okay you think that they're either like homeless and asking for money or like it's just so out of the ordinary whereas prior to phones i guarantee you there would have been people who like chatted on on the train yeah like randomly it's, it's yeah. so weird to think that... To be fair, there yeah. is... I have to say, I've noticed... Uh, I, it might be just the fact there's a bunch of tourists in Paris, but there is definitely more people who speak on the metro in Paris than there was in London. In London, it's always, for me, oh, L- London's like, yeah. like Think about our like, culture. Even when you're with your like, friends, it kind of like... You almost feel like you can't chat to your mates, you know, and have yeah. like a joke. Um, but in France, there does, I have noticed there has to be... A, like, there is always a few conversations going on. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's just a cultural difference as well. Yeah, it's it's uh, and going back, uh, touching on was it last week? I think it's tiny habits with this. Yeah. Um, it was something to do with like alternative options and how 
if you engage in a habit, it reduces the alternative options, which makes sense, right? It becomes the stronger, the stronger relationship. And it is that it's like any other kind of thing, like behaviors that you engage in on the tube, let's say kind of dwindle because everyone engages with their phone and everyone's kind of in their own lane. Um, Obviously there are cultural differences. Like you said, no, I I get what you're saying. Like the, the other options are off the table. Yeah. 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 I guess like just stripping naked and running around is probably off the table. Yeah. I can't <laughs> say that's ever been on the table, but <laughs> I can't say that's ever been, I've ever been motivated to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously there's a spectrum, but the point being, yeah. I guess, you know, we, we have constrained ourselves to specific things, you know, and I, yeah, yeah, there is definitely a play of culture involved in that as well. But I guess <laughs> culture you can argue is, is also developed through repeated interactions of people and people like working out what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. You're yeah. right. Like, so like, you know, like you said, people get a bit weirded out if you try and speak to them. And that's because they've basically been on a hundred train journeys and 99 of them, nobody spoke to them. So they think that's yeah, just the way to yeah. behave. And then the one time somebody does, it's like, Jesus Christ, what do they want from me? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It's the first thing that goes in your head. Like, what do they want? Like, why are they talking to me? Yeah, literally. Can you imagine, yeah. can you imagine if somebody's like, hey, how's it going? Like, how's your day? And they, like, all they're doing is just trying to bring up a conversation for the sake of it because they're bored. Yeah. And you're just like, it's good. Like, leave me alone, you yeah. freak. Like, it's it's like I went up to Leeds recently, and yeah. already you just see a difference with how you engage with people. Like, they're a okay. lot more engaging, you know, and and they do chat more, and they do yeah, they interact more. It's it's just yeah. it's quite interesting. Like, even for you know, like our English culture, it's very tight lipped. We beat around the bush. We don't really say what's on our mind, and so already that's against us. And then now, if you're in a big metropolitan city where you're working all the time, you're on a commute. That's another factor. And then obviously yeah. we have phones. We engage in that. We like to just be in our little bubble for that time where we're just getting to work and back. And so all those things they kind of like add to it. It's just quite funny when that someone like breaks you out of that, and you're like, oh god, yeah. okay, what the fuck is going on? And even when you're engaging, right? Like it's such it's such an English thing. Like I do this so often where someone will chat to me. So I'll switch it on. I'll be like, oh hi, yeah, yeah. And then in my head, I'm just like, can you go away, please? <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. wanna, you know, I just yeah. wanna get home. Like, yeah, God. Um bloody yeah. Scrooge didn't realize you're meeting Scrooge on the bloody uh on the metro. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, so moving on. So how habits create a competitive advantage? Habits keep users loyal. If a user is familiar with the Google interface, switching to Bing requires cognitive effort. Although many aspects of Bing are similar to Google, even a slight change in pixel placement forces the would-be user to learn a new way of interacting with the site. Adapting to the differences in Bing interface is uh, what actually slows down regular Google users and makes Bing feel inferior, not the technology itself. The ultimate goal of a habit-forming product for a business is to solve a user's pain by creating an association so that the user identifies the company's product or service as the source of relief. Um, I mean, this part's really interesting, the whole like interface changing, because you're right. Yeah. It's almost like seeing a stranger, isn't it? It's like you then have to re-evaluate, uh, like, am I safe? Like, what does this person want? You know, mm-hmm. if you're on a tube with your friend, you know them, you know what they're about, you know, like you feel friendly, like, do you get what I mean? Like there's no yeah, cognitive yeah. effort involved. You, you're like, you're relaxed, you're chilled. Somebody else comes up, speaks to you. All of a sudden you have to pay attention. Paying attention is cognitively expensive. Therefore it's like kind of by default, you could argue painful or like not painful, but you get, you kind of get what I mean. Cause it's, it's different. It's changing. Yeah. 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 Cause yeah. it's effort generating. You, you feel a different sensation. It, it makes you 
it can make you feel uncomfortable, I guess, depending on who you are. Yeah. But the point being here is as soon as you have that feeling, you're going to dislike the product in comparison to what you're familiar with. Yeah. If that makes sense. And that's, that's yeah. where the big kicker is, isn't it? And I find, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It's like when they talked about the, um, I don't know if you ever heard of the story where they had like Coke, like the standard Coke and they changed the formula once and they were like new formula and everybody hated it yeah. because they knew there was a new formula and it's a level of like the, not being familiar like causes yeah, people yeah. to be like oh yeah. like hang on a second what's going on here um, exactly and it's yeah it's not and i I, lo- I like that we i, I find it interesting yeah. that what he was saying here that you basically conflate just because something is different as like inferior or uncomfortable or yeah. you dislike it right like it says here you know just because it's changed and you d- dislike it doesn't mean the technology itself is worse it's worse, um, yeah, no, exactly. But, but you, you we feel don't really like it's worse. discriminate, yeah, yeah. Exactly. because you discriminate based on feelings, not like truth. If that makes sense, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, in fact, you discriminate based on the the fe- yeah the feelings it makes you feel, and the feelings you feel is like it is effortful to do this, and therefore I prefer the old way of doing it because the old yeah. way is not effortful. And that, exactly. if you think about it, is why habit stick is literally the same level. Is like it feels effortful to do this because I actually have to think about what to do because I'm not used to doing this compared to, or I could just continue as I am and do the same thing I do every day, which is not effortful and it's easy to do. And that is the big bloody, the challenge with everything, isn't it? Yeah. We're just so so fucking lazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. We're just all so lazy. It is true though. It's like, it's not even lazy to be honest, is it? No, it's not. Laziness technically is like, like calorifically or like, we're conservative, isn't it? Yeah, we're conservative with our energy. That's essentially it's, what we it's are. gonna. We're gonna go onto this with with our fitness, but there's a book I'm reading at the moment, which I, I believe you're reading too, exercised, and he talks a lot about the uh, like biological view of the body and how everything your body does is a trade off on what's what's the best way to spend the calories or the energy you generate every day. Yeah, and if you look at your body as a as a as an energy machine, it wants to expend the least energy possible every day and therefore using more energy to decide on doing things differently it's going to try and push away from if that makes sense anything you do which expends more energy your body's going to like sort of fight back and say nah don't and that is literally the main reason why we struggle with these these like changes um yeah and uh, to be honest we're using we're using this as an example but i'm sure people have been familiar with times they've used like an application where i don't know instagram's done an update and their interface is different like the they don't have likes or something and everybody goes yeah. in uproar because what's happened is it's completely changed the way people interact with it you know mm-hmm. yeah. I, I was forever i don't know if you've on instagram there was like um it used to be really easy to upload stories there used to be a button you press plus and then you could take a oh yeah story. now it's really confusing now it, and now you press it and it kind of makes you want to post onto your feed yeah, I mean, you have to like yeah, select yeah. it, and that is a prime example of like somebody not really doing their job correctly in my head from Instagram. Yeah, yeah. It makes yeah. it makes posting stories harder to do, and therefore yeah. people are not going to do it. The amount of times I didn't post a story which I wanted to do because I do it, take a photo, be like, "Do you want to upload this with a caption?" I'm like, "No," like, I yeah. <laughs> like yeah, and it's, it's or where I've uploaded something and it's been a story, um, being yeah. an actual post, and then I'm yeah. taking it down because I didn't yeah. want it to be a fucking post, and then that whole experience has tainted me wanting to upload a fucking story yeah <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like it's like and then i feel resentment actually towards instagram yeah. being like yeah. why have you made it so difficult to do i used to i used to be able to do this and now you make me yeah. feel like a dumbass yeah. um and that is something to be careful of as well like you know if you've enabled somebody to do something for so long and then you make a small change which makes them feel dumb they're highly likely to come back with some form of like 
no, I, like I, I actually resent you now. Like you, you yeah, pissed yeah. me off. You make me feel like an idiot. That's <laughs> um, no, true. So, yeah. Um, how to calculate a business habit forming potential. So a company can begin to, uh, can begin to de- determine its product's habit forming potential by plotting two factors: frequency, so how often the behavior occurs, and perceived utility, how useful and rewarding the behavior is in the user's mind over alternative solutions. Some behaviors never become habits because they do not occur frequently enough. Uh, this is similar to what we spoke about earlier with yeah. you know applications which you need to be used you know bi-weekly or monthly or whatever um no no matter how much utility is involved infrequent behaviors remain conscious actions and never creates the automatic response that are cat- characteristic of habits um yeah i mean that that kind of makes sense so you know if if your if your business has an application which you're not required to use every day or in fact in my head it almost has to be daily i don't think you can really build habits maybe well, i think by daily I think what's like key here is that if you have to think about yeah, it okay. and make a conscious decision, then it's probably not a habit because for instance, so going back to like, you know, I'm, I'm watching a film. I quite like it. I'm kind of curious about who's in it or what the name of someone is. It's not so much a habit because I'm engaging in the like conscious thought of like, who's this actor. Whereas like if it was automatic, if, if it has the possibility to be automatic, then I reckon that is kind of what characterizes a um, habit forming application in this case. Um, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So are you building a vitamin or painkiller? Do people say vitamin in America? I'm not actually, I think they do. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to say they do. Okay. Well, we're going with vitamin here. Um, <laughs> Just as failure has many causes, success too can be attributed to a variety of factors. However, one aspect is common to all successful innovations. They solve problems. Are you building a vitamin or painkiller? Is a common or is a common almost cliched question many investors ask founders eager to cash their first venture capital check. The correct answer from the perspective of most investors is the latter, a painkiller. Likewise, innovators in company uh, in companies big and small are constantly asked to prove their idea is important enough to merit the time and money needed to build it. Gatekeepers such as investors and managers want to invest in solving real problems or meeting immediate needs by backing painkillers. So what are they? So painkillers solve an obvious need, relieving a specific pain and often have quantifiable markets. Vitamins, on the other hand, uh, do not necessarily solve an obvious pain point. Instead, they appeal to users' emotional rather than functional needs. Um, when we take our multivitamin each morning, we don't really know if it's actually making us healthier. In fact, recent evidence shows taking multi- uh, multivitamins may actually be doing more harm than good, but we don't really care, do we? Efficacy is not why we take vitamins. Taking a vitamin is a check it off your list behavior we measure in terms of psychological rather than physical relief so true god i fucking do that um (laughs) we feel satisfied that we are doing something good for our bodies even if we can't tell how much good it is actually doing us so kind of the placebo effect honestly Um, it makes me it makes me realize vitamins have become like the new like witch doctor you know solutions to things you know because you don't Mm -hmm. actually know if they're working but you just believe because of the you know the science the guy who wears a lab coat who tells you you're going to be better after taking this is no different from the fact that witch doctor used to be like you know put leeches on yourself you'll be fine in a couple of weeks and because back then the status symbol of a witch doctor 
It was like you were the, you were the bloody, you knew your shit. And it's funny how it's like <laughs> the same thing, different like different way of representing the same symbol. If you get what I mean, like authority, yeah. somebody who knows the truth, kind of thing. Yeah. It's just it's nuts. It's no, crazy. it's 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 so interesting, and it's like there's probably a bit of theory behind the idea, but whether it, that can actually be made practical. So, for instance, you know, they'll say that. Um, lion's mane which is like a kind of mushroom mm. or, or one of them is like uh you know has the has the highest concentration of antioxidants compared to anything yeah. in the world right which is really good and we need antioxidants but that doesn't necessarily translate to if you eat this then it's way better than any other antioxidant uh, and, and also just to clarify right? if you eat that and just like if you take that sorry and you're still eating like 20 like i don't know mcdonald's 15 times a week yeah you know, yeah, yeah you yeah, drink exactly. it every day it's gonna make negligible difference so just exactly. like you just people think you know i'm gonna take a multivitamin and i can just eat shit and i'll be healthy it's just one of the biggest <laughs> yeah. myths yeah <laughs> no 100 percent. so it is it is funny and but like once again is you can't you know just paint everything with that brush that like uh that you know you don't know so it's not doing anything um there's yeah. it's there's complexity so it's hard to kind of pinpoint um but but it's interesting to think like the whole point of this concept of vitamins v painkillers is like you're selling them on the on like on the placebo on the fact that they think yeah, yeah. it's kind of working you're like yeah. you're almost like soothing their soul <laughs> to a degree you're not like solving something that's actually a problem and you they can feel the difference right like with a painkilling solution you you feel the difference because yeah. they had pain and you got removed it but the vitamin is kind of like they think it might work but they're kind of like you know i don't know they're not 100 percent sure but they're just happy they did it kind of thing I, t- I tell you what's I tell you what's interesting then off the back of that you know how we've talked about how if I want to improve my likelihood of doing something I'm going to read up on the good side uh, good things yes. about it, right the benefits yeah. of it in this case with a vitamin it's almost in the company's interest to just flaunt as many kind of benefits as possible so like this vitamin does this 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 and this these kind of athletes yeah. use it and this is why they're really like you know athletic all these kind of things that um, increase your perception of it being good. Because if it's just based on kind of placebo, it may, there may be an element that does work, but if you can increase their, improve their perception of your product, then that is kind of what's winning out because it's like, Oh, okay. This is, this is good for me. I should be doing this a lot. It it reminds me of, um, did you ever read bad science with Ben Goldcare? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He talks a lot about um, those sort of like, alternative medicine solutions like detox things where like they basically put some chemical in it where when you added your hair or your skin follicles the the color would change to black to look like you just toxified the water and like that's like a level of like you give them a visceral reaction to like show them that the product's working even though it's not like it's like we talked about this before didn't we with the toothpaste the toothpaste is a minty taste even though it's not necessary because it makes you think it's working so like these companies tell you the benefits and tell you what you should be looking for so for example somebody might say you should do meditation and you'll start feeling like this and then you start placeboing yourself into feeling like that and you're like oh this is really working does that, yeah, that yeah. kind of make sense yeah, you like yeah, yeah. you like psyop them into believing it's working so you're like once you start doing this you'll feel like this and the problem is with feelings they're so like individual i guess and you mm-hmm. define them do you get what i mean like yeah i only have one word for happiness really or like or like do you kind of get what i mean but there's many different forms of the same happiness but i don't have the vocabulary to discern the difference yeah, 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 yeah. people will then also confuse feelings and they might even confuse the feeling of i've checked off my list to i'm feeling better because they'll yeah. feel good for checking off their vitamin from the list they'll be like i feel better 
but that's because you've actually got an increase in what you've got a dopamine because you've managed to continue towards your goal or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's, it's uh, it is interesting that actually. And then another thing companies do as well is with the um, <clears throat> there's a lot. I don't know if you ever heard of the uh, sales framework. So like people who are in sales, they have a they have a copywriting yeah. framework or email framework called PAS P A S Problem okay. Agitate Solution. So what they do is yeah, yeah, the way yeah, they yeah. sell to you is they make you realize you've got a problem. So this yeah. is kind of where painkilling selling almost comes in. Yeah. So your thing might not even, yeah, then they agitate it and they go, we're the solution kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's interesting to think because you can actually I think governments them. do that these days, don't they? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Mate, was that actually in the, was that in the uh, psychology of total, totalitarianism, whatever it was called? Was that, was that not, framework in it? Not, it not like... using that framework, but he does very much talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's the same thing with the shock doctrine, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, this, the There's, problem. There's, there's so many there's so many examples of it. There's another really good yeah. one called like the anxiety makers, and it talks about how modern consumerism actually <laughs> came about from making people anxious about yeah, specific things. So, so like yeah. anxious about bad breath, anxious about your smell, anxious about yeah, yeah. all these things, which then promotes you know perfume, anxious about your looks. Oh, you don't look great. Your, your clothes make you look poor. Okay, yeah. you're anxious about it. How do I solve that problem? I buy expensive clothes. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's 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 nuts. It's how it's how. It, it, it works, yeah, it's it's it's. It, you work backwards from the product essentially being like, okay, yeah. this is our product. Yeah. What yeah. is the pro- well, problem yeah. that it's or possible problem? Let's create a problem. Yeah, exactly. That no, exactly. And, solving, that's the, that's easiest, right? and that's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. You know, create a problem. How do you create a, a problem? You, you create an anxiety around something. Okay. Yeah. How do you create an anxiety around something? You create like an ideal and then you make people feel like they're nowhere near this ideal, whether yeah. it's an ideal that's universal, such as poor, rich, are, you know intelligent stupid all yeah. these ideals that people want to be you make them feel anxious by saying if you don't do this you're not this and then all yeah. of a sudden they buy stuff based upon the oh i can be intelligent if i buy this you know yeah. or i can be beautiful if i buy this it's it's crazy but that's how it works you think about it because- every like ad that i see on instagram pretty much is using the same framework like there's this uh um soap one and it's like this is what soaps are made from and this is what they smell like oh yes men. no you know it's like no, something is, i can't remember it's something balls. sasquatch yeah does the sasquatch uh, no, he yeah. always does one like he's like don't put all these chemicals on you and he like his habits like yeah, yeah. pouring loads of chemicals in yeah, your head yeah, yeah. it's like this is like natural soap or something i'm like exactly. oh god and then there's another one it's like a t-shirt and it's like you know good fitting tailored t-shirts or something he's like look at bob he looks terrible or like and then look at oh, yes. steve he looks yeah, amazing yeah. you know no, it's like they're quite funny they're, there's a comedian yeah. does that. i think it's called oh what's that brand called i know there's a guy who does it but he's a comedian i think that adds yeah, a it is very right? comedic yeah. and he's there like dancing like in his shirt and he yeah, looks, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 um it's but no it, but they all it's it's interesting, yeah, because like it's just a method at the end of the day yeah. of trying to sell a product. Um, but back to the painkillers. So unlike a painkiller, without which we cannot function, missing a few days of vitamin popping, say while on vacation, is no big deal. So perhaps managers and investors know best. Perhaps building painkillers, not vitamins, is always the right strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, quicker go on to the next bit so if you are building a habit forming product write down the answers to these questions so these are a few actionable questions so what habits um does your business model require what problems uh, what problem are users turning to your product to solve how do users currently solve that problem and why does it need a solution how frequently do you expect users to engage with your product and what user behavior um do you want to make into a habit 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could just run through this as like a, with a fictional example of like Facebook. So what habit yeah. does your business model require, you know, continuous using of the application? What problem are users turning to your product to solve? You, I mean, <laughs> Mark, so, Zuckerberg well, say, like, Mark Zuckerberg would say connection, connection yeah, with your family. To connect the world. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, real, real reason people are bored and they're looking for <laughs> like to to take their mind off, you know, their, the monotony of daily life or whatever that, you know, yeah. or the pain of having to do their next job at task at work. So how do users currently solve that problem? Uh, they bite their nails. They, you know, they make a coffee, they procrastinate, they talk to somebody. How do they now solve it? They use your app. Uh, how frequently do you expect users to engage with your product uh, every day, if not more? Uh, what users, uh, what user behavior do you want to make into a habit, continuous use or like picking up your phone and using throughout the day? Yeah. bam like that's literally their model isn't it um like, i still love it how they all these companies they all have these like, like ridiculous humanistic answers but yes that's where i was going with it yeah, yeah. the cynical me is like the pr team comes out and like goes, okay yeah, hang on yeah, a second let's just transform this nefarious business into something that's really <clears> like <throat> positive for the world yeah it's like it's not about us making 40 billion of profit this year it's yeah. about you reaching your long lost uncle that you never knew yeah. existed until last week you know and it's like, yeah the meta like the meta what was it they, they released that product for like a group or like video calling on your tv and they always have like a picture of like their grandparents calling their kids and then you just think, who the fuck uses Facebook for that? Like, <laughs> just I I if I call know. my grandparents yeah, just... on like FaceTime or something, or I don't know, it's just yeah, like, yeah. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, I just, don't, I don't use Facebook anymore. I haven't yeah. used it in a long time. Um, it's just yeah. criminal. Anyway, so we're going on to the hooks model in uh, further detail. So we're going to start with step one, the triggers. Mm-hmm. So as we said earlier, triggers come in two <clears> types, external and internal. So external triggers are habit forming, uh, sorry, habit forming technology start changing behavior by first queuing users with a call to action. This sensory stimuli is delivered through any number of things in our environment. External triggers are embedded information which tells the user what to do next. An external trigger communicates the next action the user should take. Often the desired action is made explicitly clear. Um, So types of external triggers, companies can utilize four types of external triggers to move users to complete desired actions. Number one is a pay trigger. So this is where I think most businesses do top of funnels. This is called like advertising, search engine marketing and other paid channels. So this is where people first come into contact with businesses. Um, So habit forming companies tend not to rely on pay triggers for very long, if at all. So the primary focus of these paid ones in my head is to get people to first discover your business, your application, et cetera. Um, It's the very top of funnel stuff. Then you have two earned triggers. So earned triggers are free in that they cannot be bought directly, but they often require investment in the form of time spent on public and media relations. So favorable press mentions, hot viral videos and featured app store placements are effective ways to gain attention. Um, but the awareness generated by earn triggers can be short-lived because, you know, as we know with the the press cycle these days, things are in, you know, in virality one team, moment, yeah. then they're, you know, finish the next. Um, so then we've got three relationship triggers. So one person telling others about a product or service can be highly effective external trigger for action, whether through an electronic invitation, a Facebook like, or an old-fashioned word of mouth, product referrals from friends and family are often a key component of technolo- technology diffusion.
So relationship triggers can create the viral hypergrowth entrepreneurs and investors lust after. Sometimes relationship, trig- uh, relationship triggers gri- drive growth because people love to tell one another about a wonderful offer. So yeah, this is just you know classic word of mouth people sharing yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, this is the main share this out. and you'll get fifty percent off your next <clears> one. It's like all yeah because I think what is it? It, it? Wasn't there something about like they figured out that for every one person they they share it to seven others or something like that? I can't. Yeah, something but, like that. But I mean, it's even I'm a sucker for this stuff. Like we've been doing HelloFresh off the back of you know basically offering each other, you know, each yeah, yeah. each other, you know, the HelloFresh stuff, and you get discounts based off it. Is fact we were. Yeah talking about this research kind of model was for oh the barefoot shoes um oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah the and the very last trigger is own triggers so own triggers consume a piece of real estate in the user's environment they consistently show up in daily life and it's ultimately up to the user to opt in allowing these triggers to appear for example an app icon on the user's phone screen an email newsletter to which the user subscribes or an app update notification only appears if the user wants it there so that is you know, in my head as well, push notifications. So anytime you've, you've, you've allowed notifications on your phone, you technically earned it because they downloaded the app and said, yes, give me the, you know, the notification when I need to use it. Um, so that's all the external triggers. And now the internal triggers is where, you know, sort of the magic happens. So internal triggers are when a product becomes tightly coupled with a thought and emotion or a pre-existing routine, it leverages an internal trigger. So types of internal triggers are, Emotions, particularly negative ones, are powerful internal triggers and of and greatly influence our daily routines. So, as we've said many times, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. And I think that's by far probably the most common with uh, social media usage and stuff. It's you know, yep. it's a tool of procrastination to to remove the feeling of like. I guess pain when you you think about all the things you have to do. Um, yeah. So yeah. And I, yeah, I think it just emphasizes that kind of process of something beginning externally, like a trigger beginning externally, until that relationship is created, and then you have that internal trigger, right? You you're first made aware of Instagram and Facebook from loads of fucking um advertising and then you download the app and you know you've got it there you've earned that kind of like physical you know app in your library or in your on your phone and then there are notifications and stuff like that start to pop up and then finally after you start to use it oh plus you've got loads of friends telling you about it and that's actually another thing that it ropes you into and then eventually you know the more time you spend on it, the more it creates that kind of relationship of it yeah. soothing those kind of negative emotions or any kind yeah. of emotions really. Um, I think yeah. also it's, it's worth noting on this point that the, the external triggers, this book isn't really built around the external triggers are more, as we said, like marketing, advertising, etc. He obviously just mentions them in the book in my head to just talk about the fact yeah. that they do exist because the whole point of this like hook cycle is to get them, to internally like trigger themselves if that makes if that makes sense because habits like you said if they if they require unconscious thought in my head they have to kind of have a internal trigger almost to be properly effective absolutely Um, so i'll quickly do this one and then you can do step two so what do people want we often think the internet enables you to do new things but people just want to do the same thing they've always done and that's an interesting point by itself because I, I love the idea of like, I can't remember what I saw it before. It's just the internet almost just reflects 
like human nature or like what yeah. human desires, right? And it's it's one of those things that people thought, oh, the internet's going to change desires, but they're pretty, you know, as we know, or as we probably, me and you obviously believe, they are relatively fixed. There might be a variation to the desires, but I think, uh, you know, the, the desire to, you know, the, what you call it, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a fairly good and basic uh description of the human basic human needs and wants and desires etc which yeah. we all kind of are constrained to um so yeah as he says these common needs are timeless and universal yet talking to users to reveal these wants will likely prove ineffective because they themselves don't know which emotions motivate them people just don't think in these terms you often find that people's declared preferences what they say they want are far different from their revealed preferences which is what they actually do uh as erica hall author of just enough research writes when the research focuses on what people actually do, brackets, watch cat videos, rather than what they wish they did, brackets, produce home quality, uh, produce cinema quality home videos, it mm. actually extends possibilities. So looking for discrepancies exposes opportunities. Why do people really send tem- text messages? Text messages, sorry. Why do they take photos? What role does watching television or sports play in their lives? Ask yourself what pain these habits solve and what the user might be feeling right before one of these actions. And it's so true. Like, you know, yeah. the popularity of cat videos and stuff really like we all as, as, as humans have like noble goals, right? Like we want to be, I don't know, like, like you said there, the next film producer, we want to yeah, do these yeah, yeah, great yeah. things, but we still find ourselves watching cat videos. Yeah. I, or, or you know, I funny, funny animal videos, etc. Uh, right. It's just like, we have like a desire to be distracted, right? To, yeah. to cons- <clears throat> I guess it's back to this idea of like the trading off of energy, just to conserve mm-hmm. energy because thinking, planning requires cognitive effort. Watching cat videos doesn't. So yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a slippery slope, those cat videos. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness, yes. With those short videos on Instagram and YouTube and stuff like that, bloody hell, you could just end, end up being on it for hours. Yeah. God. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, so... <laughs> I just remembered as well, this book had some really good, um, at the end of each part of the hook cycle, it had some yeah. really good questions. So these are the questions from that you need to ask yourself around triggers and how triggers could apply to your business or project. So who is your product's user? What is the user doing right before your intended habit? So come up with three internal triggers that could cue your user to action. And here he talks about asking why five times to deep dive into their actual reasons. So like, um, you know, the feeling unmotivated why because they didn't do this why because of this because of that and then eventually you'll get to their sort of soul motivation yeah, behind yeah. it yeah then you've got which internal trigger does your user experience most frequently um fi- and then finish this brief narrative using the most frequent internal trigger and the habit you're designing so every time the user brackets internal trigger he or she brackets first action of the intended habit um and, yeah. and this is worth doing these so if you go on a wisewoods.blog and look at the written book summary you can copy and paste across all of these steps because if the from what i remember these all build on each other so these questions from the trigger yeah. section will build on the step two action section um and yeah yeah no precisely yeah i think i think they're really good questions actually i really liked uh, thinking about it <coughs> um when i was reading it um so on to step two action so the next step in the hook is um, phase is the action phase. Uh, the trigger driven by internal or external cues informs the user of what to do next. However, if the user does not take action, the trigger is useless. To initiate action, doing must uh, doing must be easier than thinking. 
Remember, a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. The more effort, either physical or mental, required to perform the desired action, the less likely it is to occur. BJ Fogg, the founder and director of the Stanford Behavior Design Lab, posits that there are three ingredients required to initiate any and all behaviors. So just a reminder for those who watched last week or didn't, uh, BJ Fogg is the one who came up with the BMAP. Um, he was the one who wrote Tiny Habits that we did last week. Um, and yeah, a lot of this kind of framework is based on his kind of BMAP model. So the three ingredients um, required to initiate any and all behaviors. Uh, number one, the user must have sufficient motivation. Um, number two, the user must have the ability to complete the desired action. And three, a trigger must be presented to activate the behavior. This led to his now, yeah, famous BMAP model. Um, so we went over this last week, um, the kind of uh, graph that he's created and how there is a kind of line of curvature um, based on the behavior model. So if you're below that line, um, then you are unlikely to actually follow through with the action. So either ability needs to be really easy um, or motivation needs to be like really small. Um, so let's walk through an example um, Fog uses to explain his model. So imagine a time when your mobile phone rang, but you didn't answer it. Why not? Perhaps the phone was buried in a bag and therefore difficult to reach. In this case, your inability to easily answer the phone call um, inhibited the action. Your ability was limited. Um, maybe you thought the caller was a telemarketer or someone else you did not want to speak to. So your lack of motivation influenced you to ignore the call. So your motivation was low. So it is, um, it is possible that the call was important and within arm's reach, but the ringer on your phone was silenced. Despite having both a strong motivation and easy access to answer the call, it was completely missed because you never heard it ring. In other words, no trigger was present. So all of those three points um, refer to the three aspects of the um, BMAP model, and they all kind of need to be present, or at least, yeah, they all need to be present for you to be able to achieve the action. Um, yeah. So I think the next section is about what causes someone to be motivated. And we definitely did touch on this, um, a little bit in tiny habits, uh, because this, I, I believe he's taken this directly from tiny habits. Um, so the nature of motivation is a widely contested topic in psychology, but fog argues that three core motivators drive a desire to act. Fogg states that all humans are motivated to seek pleasure and avoid pain to seek hope and avoid fear, and finally to seek social acceptance and avoid rejection. The two sides of the three core, core motivators can be thought of as levers to increase or decrease the likelihood of someone's, uh, someone's taking a particular action by increasing or decreasing that person's motivation. While internal triggers are the frequent everyday itch experienced by users, the right motivators create action by offering the promise of a desirable outcome, i.e. satisfying that scratch or itch. However, even with the right trigger enabled and motivation running high, product designers often find users still don't behave the way they want them to. So what's missing in this equation? Usability or rather the ability of the user to take action easily, um, which is why, you know, there's an even, there's a, I'm pretty sure, um, like a job role these days under the role of like head of usability or, you know, head UX. Is it UX? I think it is UX. User experience. User, yeah, something like that. But th th this job role exists around it precisely because it's so important to make something easy to do. Yeah, 
No, absolutely, because it is it is crucial. And I think even in um, Tiny Habits, he kind of there's more emphasis on being able to achieve the ability first, you know, um, honing on making the ability easier first than like trying to make motivation smaller. Um, Cause it's just so important, you know, like we've talked about, you know, once you know, once you've done it, there's less ambiguity, you know, you know what you're going to do. It's not really too, if it's easy enough, it's not too tough. Um, so you're- yeah, there's there's also principles of usability as well, right? Like it's a, uh, an example could be something like make it very clear what the person should do on this website or application. I always yep. find some of the best, you know, like when you put your information into a website to contact you or whatever, I always mm-hmm. find the best ones are the ones where they make you focus on one part at a time. So instead of being like a big form with name, email, product you want, like uh, your address, whatever, it, it goes one by one. So you have name, you put your name in, yeah, press yeah, go, yeah. And it changes. Yeah. So you, you only ever focus on that one task rather than that yeah. whole idea of, you know, multiple tasks. It kind of, it, it causes more cognitive energy because if you can focus on one at a time, it kind of, it, it just feels better as an experience, right? It does. Yeah. Um, there's less, and uh, there's less information. It's not as busy. There's less noise. Yeah, you know? Exactly um, that. And and sometimes you can be deceptive as well. Cause you don't realize that this form could be like 20 questions long because you're focusing one at a time. Uh, yeah. It feels quicker. Um, so on to the next bit. So three simple steps to creating truly innovative products. So in his book, something really new, three simple, um, three simple steps to creating truly innovative products. Author Dennis J. Hawkley uh, deconstructs the process of innovation into its most fundamental steps. So first, Hawkley um, states, understand the reason people use a product or service. Second, uh, lay out the steps the customer must take to get the job done. And three, finally, uh, once the series of tasks from intention to outcome is understood, simply start removing steps until you reach the simplest possible process. Consequently, any technology or product that significantly reduces the steps to complete the task will enjoy high adoption rates by the people it assists. Hortley's formula for innovation when he describes his own approach to building two massively successful companies. Take a human desire, preferably one that has been around for a really long time, identify that desire and use modern technology to take out steps. To successfully simplify a product, we must remove obstacles that stand in the user's way. Yeah, I mean, this kind of, I was thinking about buying this book as well. I like the idea of it, but I feel like this summarizes that book in a couple of paragraphs. Uh, It's quite a nice little recipe though, you know, um, detail why somebody wants to do something, detail what these steps it takes them to do something and then try and figure out as as many ways or yeah as many ways as possible to remove the steps yeah you know it kind of makes sense doesn't it and if you think about a lot of um technological business uh business opportunities that have been taken in this like internet era they just built upon something that already exists so think about like buying tickets for an event you used to have to go to like somebody who was reselling the tickets who was given them. Now you can just hop online and buy it from whoever. Yeah. So it's the same action, but they're making it easier because yeah. the steps, now you didn't have to find who's reselling the tickets, where they're reselling. You have to turn up in person. Yeah. Now it's just like you go on your laptop, you search Ticketmaster. let's just say, there you go. You can buy them straight from there. You know, it's the same, yeah. the same job, just infinitely easier. And it makes so much sense. Why because... Google is so useful, you know? Yeah. Because well, you think about grab it, like... a big, the yellow pages, you know? Where is this? Where's this bloody thing that I need to find? Google nearest hairdresser by me. Boom. You know, exactly. 
And those thing, those behaviors that the people uh, that people engage in already probably used to be the simplest or the easiest option, and now there's a new easier option, right? So they're more likely to. to it's it's it makes sense that they would gravitate towards that. Just make the process so much simpler. Um, less energy is being expended, yeah, yeah. essentially. No, exactly um, that. Yeah. yeah. So the elements of simplicity. So Fogg describes six elements of simplicity, uh, which are the factors that influence a task difficulty. These are one time and so, so so time. Sorry, how long it takes to complete an action. Two, money, the fiscal cost of taking action. Three, physical effort, the amount of labor involved in taking the action. Four, brain, uh, the cycles or sorry, brain cycles, the level of mental effort and focus required to take an action. Five, social deviance, how accepted the behavior is. And six, non-routine. So according to Fogg, this is how much the action matches or disrupts existing routines. I believe we definitely touched these, touched on these yeah. last week, didn't we? We were talking that uh, we were calling them what was it friction factors? Friction factors, yeah. factors is technically what he called yeah, them. Yeah, and I remember I sent you something about like anxiety, didn't I? I sent yeah, you something yeah, about yeah. how some the anxiety of taking an action can stop people from doing stuff, but we need to yeah. flesh that out. Yeah. Um, so Fogg instructs designers to focus on simplicity as a function of the user's scarcest resource in that moment. In other words, identify what the user is missing and answer the following questions. What is it? What is making it difficult for the user to accomplish the desired action? Is the user short on time? Is the behavior too expensive? Or is the user exhausted after a long day of work? Or perhaps the product is too difficult to understand? Or is the user in a social context where the behavior could be perceived as inappropriate? Or is the behavior simply so far removed from the user's normal routine that its strangeness is off-putting? These factors would differ by person and context. Therefore, designers should ask, what is the thing that is missing that would allow my users to proceed to the next step? Um, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much in my head the whole art of doing you know, user experience optimization within a business. It's, you know, asking yeah. these questions and providing, you know, providing steps or things which makes it easier for all of these things to be hit. Um, I find it quite interesting that some of these ones as well, let's just say a barrier could be, uh, I don't have enough time. A lot of businesses these days put like, you know, the time it would take to answer the formula, like, you know, answer yeah, this formula yeah. less than 30 seconds. Like, I mean, in fact, I we did that with Slidify. Answer this form, it would take you less than 30 seconds and it's free. You remove the constraint of money, you move the constraint of time, yeah. you know? And then there's obviously there's probably ways you can optimize. I mean, not just the back of this, I'm looking at this now, I could use this to optimize my process. So is yeah. the behavior exhausted? I don't know, is the product too difficult to understand? Uh, I don't know, I just feel like there's other opt uh, optimization points here which could, you know, help any business just by thinking about them. Yeah, but I think I think it is really important. It's like if you can, you know, give clarity to these kind of um, different factors, then it just reduces someone's friction of engaging with it. Because otherwise, they have to go off their own. You know, well, I don't know how long the survey is going to take. So already they're they're unsure about that. They don't know whether you know they're going to have to commit time or how mentally taxing it might be or whatnot. So if you can reduce all those things by just being clear, giving information about them, that already reduces it. And it's, it's it, yeah. it, realistically, it's the same thing with like any kind of like sales pitch. Like think about, what was it? Jordan Belfort's book. Um, God, I hate that uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, right? Or something yeah. like The Way of the Wolf. Yeah. Or something like that. yeah. His like process was like, I don't know. He the straight line selling. The straight yeah. line selling. And basically yeah. like, you know, 
people would fluctuate throughout that line. And the whole idea was to bring them back to the line. The way to do that was to ask, well, what are your, you know, what are the factors that are getting in the way? Do you not have enough money? Okay, well, let's solve that problem. Do you not have enough mental energy to like follow oh, is that the system? That's solve- cool. That's really interesting. It's not, but like essentially. Yeah, but but I, get, I get the point, right? Like it's, you're yeah. trying to flow the line to the end goal and it's yeah. like helping them solve the dips and troughs or like the problems related yeah, to yeah. that. Like, you know, I don't have enough money. Cool, we can do a credit. It's like, oh, my my wife won't allow me to do that. It's like, okay, well, let's deal with that problem. It's like, let's let's get rid of the wife. (laughs) Come on, ten thousand pink slips. Yeah, Um, yeah. So, but but essentially, it's just getting from A to B and dealing with those kind of problems in the way. And these are essentially those um, some of them. Um, So, moving on then. So, which comes first motivation or ability this is kind of what we were talking about before so where's your time and money better spent the answer is always to start with ability uh naturally all three uh, parts of bmat um must be present for a singular user action to occur without a clear trigger and sufficient motivation there will be no behavior however for companies building technology solutions the greatest return on investment generally comes from increasing a product's ease of use the fact is increasing motivation is expensive and time consuming Website visitors tend to ignore instruction, uh, instructional text. They are often multitasking and have little patience for explanations about why or how they should do something. Influencing behavior by reducing the effort required to perform an action is more effective than increasing someone's desire to do it. Make your product so simple that users already know how to use it and you've got a winner. Um, yeah like we've touched on this so many times, but just like how important it is to make something easy to do. It really is just like the biggest kind of hurdle because otherwise it's just friction. There's, there's more and more unnecessary friction. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, off the back, off the back of this now, we've got the same as the first, uh, first part of the hook cycle. So a couple of questions to continue asking yourself so answer the following questions to focus your thinking on implementing step two which is the action step so walk through the path your users would take to use your product or service beginning from the time they feel their internal trigger to the point where they receive their expect uh, expected outcome how many steps does it take before users obtain the reward they came for and then how does this process compare with the simplicity of some of the examples described in this chapter in fact how does it even compare with competing products or services from there, you need to uh, break down the resources which are limiting your user's ability to accomplish the task that will become habits. So back to what we said before, the time, the brain cycles is brackets. Is it too confusing? Money, social deviance. So how how is this behavior outside the norm? Physical effort. And then also the non-routine. Is it too new? And brainstorm three testable ways to make intended tasks easier to complete. Yeah, like it's very straightforward, but yeah. So part three, then we're moving on to the variable reward. So the third step in the hook model is the variable reward phase in which you reward users by solving a problem, reinforcing their motivation for the action taken in the previous phase. What draws us to act is not the sensation we receive from the reward itself, but the need to alleviate the craving for that reward. So I guess it's similar to like, you know, the, the, the pain needing to alleviate the pain that's associated mm-hmm. with the state you're in as well. So Nia El proposes that the fa- variable rewards can come in three types, the tribe, the hunt and the self. So habit forming products utilize one or more of these variable reward types. So reward of the tribe is the search for social rewards fueled by connectedness with other people. Rewards of the hunt is the search for material resources and information. 
and in the rewards of the self is the search for intrinsic rewards of mastery, competence, and completion. I thought this part yeah. was quite interesting to you there. Yeah, it was something kind of new. It was a bit more... Um, yeah, I, just well, kind of like, I mean, we've, we've been going on for ages about, you know, um, making habits feel good and having a reward. This kind of talks about the different types of rewards, which yeah. none of the other habit things kind of got onto. So exactly. a bit like, you know, why does, I guess, why does it become more addictive to have stuff like Strava where you do something good and have a habit and then people can see your score because it's, it's yeah. a tribal reward, right? It's yeah. connecting It's people seeing your, you know, your progress, so to speak. Yeah, it plays to your kind of like social reputation aspect of things. And the yeah. reason why I think this is quite nice because it's kind of like evolutionary psychology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So rewards of the tribe. We are a species that depends on one another. Rewards of the tribe or social rewards are driven by our connectedness with other people. Our brains are adapted to seek rewards that make us feel accepted, attractive, important and included. It is no surprise that social media has exploded in popularity. Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest and several other sites collectively provide over a billion people with powerful social rewards on a variable schedule. Um, with every post, tweet or pin, users anticipate social validation. Rewards of the tribe keep users coming back wanting more. While variable content gets users to keep searching for interesting tidbits in their news feeds, a click of like button provides a variable reward for the content's creator. Likes and comments offer tribal validation for those who share the content and provide variable rewards that motivate them to continue posting. Cora demonstrated that the social rewards and the variable reinforcement of recognition from peers proved to be a salient and frequent motivator. Cora instituted an upvoting system that reports user satisfaction with answers and provides a steady stream of social feedback. Cora's social rewards have proven more attractive than monetary rewards. Only by understanding what truly matters to users can a company correctly match the right variable reward to their intended behavior. And I think, yeah, that right there just really shows you how kind of geared we are towards being connected to others and having this kind of social More so than money to a degree, right? Because if you think about it, money's almost come a by proxy for social status as well. So like exactly, yeah. money get money gains you find uh, like influence power, but it also gains you like perceived status in this day and age, right? Yeah. Among peers, like you look better because you have more money, kind of thing. If that makes sense, yeah. So and it's I actually guess like a, a proxy for social status. Yeah, and I wonder if like money in itself doesn't really reflect how others in the tribe think of you, which mm. can't really be bought in in that kind of way and so i wonder if but, but it's why... also it's something that people pursue let's just say they don't have a, a career which can give them much money they will then highly likely pursue the social status part right yeah, yeah, another yeah form yeah. of like reward um in my head absolutely at least yeah yeah and it, like it's interesting that they said that you know social reward kind of um supersedes sometimes monetary rewards because that kind of makes sense it's like if you're getting it through that kind of means then it's almost better like obviously money gives you many different things but yeah um, so like i think money plays into this sort of like the next part doesn't it with the sort of rewards of the hunt in terms of like yeah it gives you materialistic things yeah, i think another thing exactly. it gives you is um power so like control it's the ability mm-hmm. to control the, your reality a bit more and therefore yeah. it's like inherently addictive um okay we'll just go on to that now so the rewards of the hunt so the search for resources defines the next type of variable reward the rewards of the hunt the need to acquire physical objects such as food and other supplies that aid our survival is part of our brain's operating system. 
Where we once hunted for food, today we hunt for other things. In modern society, food cannot be bought with cash, uh, can be bought with cash, sorry. And more recently, by extension, information translates into money. Rewards of the hunt existed long before the advent of computers. Uh, yeah, yeah, today we've we find numerous examples of variable rewards associated with the pursuit of resources and information that compel us with the same determination as the hunter chasing his prey. So here are a few examples of products that create habits by leveraging rewards of the hunt. So machine gambling. So most people know that machine gambling benefits the casino or broker far more than the players. As the old adage says, the house always wins. Yet despite this knowledge, the multi-billion dollar gambling industry continues to thrive. So slot machines provide a classic example of variable rewards of hunt. Gamblers plunk one billion per day into slot machines in American casinos, which is a testament to the machine's power to compel players. By awarding money in random intervals, games of chance entice players with the prospect of a jackpot. Naturally, winning is entirely outside the gambler's control, yet the pursuits can be intoxicating. I think this is a pretty good example. And yeah, then Twitter, the, the feed has become a social staple of many online products. The stream of limitless information displayed in a scrolling interface makes for a compelling reward of the hunt. The Twitter timeline, for example, is filled with a mix of both mundane and relevant content. This variety creates an enticing, unpredictable user experience. On occasion, a user might find a particularly interesting piece of news, while the other times they won't. So to keep hunting for more information, all that is needed is a flick of the finger or a scroll of a mouse. And we were talking about that earlier, you know, the whole yeah. idea of like, you know, some things are relevant to you, some things are not. And that actually by having stuff which isn't relevant, it actually incurs you to swipe more because if everything yeah. was relevant, you kind of, you'd almost be bored by the predictability of the relevance. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Well, you need that kind of comparison effect, don't you? So, uh, something to compare. Okay. This is relevant. And this is just, the, um, this is new. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You've got that, you know, comfort of familiarity, but also that like, um, uh, novelty seeking aspect to it as well. Um, yeah. So then the last part here is rewards of the self. So finally, there are vari variable rewards. We seek for more personal form of gratification. We are driven to conquer obstacles, even if just for the satisfaction of doing so. Pursuing a task to completion can influence people to continue all sorts of behaviors, even cold showers. Um, surprisingly, we even pursue these rewards when we don't outwardly appear to enjoy them. The rewards of the self are fueled by intrinsic motivation, as highlighted by the work of Edward Desi and Richard Ryan. Their self-determination theory espouses that people desire, among other things, to gain a sense of competency. Adding an element of mystery to, um, to this goal makes the pursuit all the more enticing. And that kind of ties in a bit with, I would say, like Maslow's hierarchy, the kind of self-actualization, the, the top bit. You know, we want to be able to see it be seen to be competent at things that we do um, and just for like an integral purpose. But uh, it gives us kind of self-worth. And yeah. So a couple of examples of these. So video games. So the uh, rewards of the self are defining component in video games as players seek to master the skills needed to pursue their quest, leveling up, unlocking special powers and other game mechanism uh, mechanics fulfill a player's desire for competency by showing progression and completion. Yes. Um, yeah, which we're very familiar with like it, the idea that games can really just give you that because they can give you that kind of like instant feedback um which gives you that sense of like competency at something you can constantly be improving at a skill um 
And then two, so Code Academy. So Code Academy seeks to make learning to write code more fun and rewarding. The site offers step-by-step instructions for building a web app, animation, and even browser-based games. The interactive lessons deliver immediate feedback in contrast to traditional methods of learning to code by writing whole programs. Learning a new skill is often filled with errors, but Code Academy uses the difficulty to its advantage. There is a constant element of the unknown when it comes to completing the task at hand. Like in a game, users uh, receive variable rewards as they learn. Um, Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. Yet as their competency level improves, uh, users work to advance through levels mastering the curriculum. Um, and I think that's quite interesting. I, I kind of want to try out this Code Academy thing. It sounds quite quite good that it's like kind of being gamified. But um, I think, yeah, it can definitely be applied to learning platforms and you're starting to see that more and more where there is this like instant feedback so that you can kind of you know, improve on a skill. Yeah. Um, so a caveat. Recently, gamification defined as the use of game-like elements in non-game environments has been used with varying success. Points, badges, and leaderboards can prove effective, but only if they scratch the user's itch. When there is a mismatch between the customer's problem and the company's assumed solution, no amount of gamification will help spur engagement. Likewise, if the user has no ongoing itch at all, say uh, no need to return no need to return repeatedly to a site that lacks any value beyond the initial visit. Gamification will fail because of a lack of inherent interest in the product or service offered. In other words, gamification is not a one-size-fits-all solution for driving user engagement. I mean, yeah, that kind of makes sense, to be fair. Like, you can't gamify something that is inherently not fun, you know? <laughs> what's the, yeah. Like, unless you get a couple of badges for every time you eat poo or something, you know? No matter how big the leader is. probably not going to work. Yeah. Maybe no, for those possibly. very few individuals who happen to be inclined to that kind yeah. of thing, but yeah. yeah. Um, um, <laughs> it's like gamer, <laughs> gamifying, like, a mental asylum. Like, yeah. fucking hell. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> weird sort of behaviors going on in there yeah oh um, um yeah yeah that does kind of make sense it's you know it does yeah. it's, it is interesting i tried code academy by the way it's really good um i, did, I used it a couple of years ago yeah it's um i just like how the compared to most other like sort of learning platforms for learning code the fact it like auto corrects you and stuff is pretty yeah, useful. yeah. Yeah, like you can I build can next to the you can run the code next to like the results like you can usually uh, okay. what you have to do is you have to put the code into a thing and then run it but this like you can see it side by side so it's yeah, yeah. it's really good for like immediately getting feedback on what you're doing um, yeah oh, that's cool so yeah um and yeah so the next part infinite variability so experiences with finite variability become less engaging because they eventually become predictable so businesses with finite variability are not inferior per se they just operate under different constraints they must constantly churn out new content and experiences to cater to their consumers insatiable desire for novelty it is no coincidence that both hollywood and the video gaming industry operate under what is called the studio model whereby a deep-pocketed company provides backing and distribution to a portfolio of movies or games uncertain which one will become the next mega hit to illustrate this point think about the replayability of multiplayer games world of warcraft is frequently played with teams it's hard to predict behavior of other people it keeps which sorry it, yeah it's hard to predict the behavior of other people that keeps the game interesting 
So products utilizing infinite variability stand a better chance of holding onto users' attention, while those with finite variability must constantly reinvent themselves just to keep pace. And that makes sense. Think about like COD Warzone. And that even then they yeah, add yeah. variability into it occasionally by creating new maps. But the fact that each time you go into the map, there's different people's behavior, it keeps you constantly engaged. Whereas, exactly. you know, playing a playing a sorry, single player campaign, there might be a massive open world, but there's there's not enough variability built into it. There's a, there's a bit, there's a few different types yeah, yeah. of side quests, but they always tend to be the same over time and that becomes boring. Yeah. No, it, it is it is really true. And it's like, you know, we've touched on this, how like people introduce variability into habits. Um, sometimes that can be a good thing. And in this case, you know, for a company, if you're able to integrate something where you can leverage there being more people and um, them introducing variabilities, one less thing you have to think about. Because like you just said, yeah, okay, they make new maps and stuff like that and do little updates, but it's not feasible to continuously do that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting point actually that you touched on there. Um, so on to the last part of this step three. So uh, going back over the the questions that he kind of like um, presents. So answer the following questions to explore how you can use variable rewards with your product or project. So speak with five of your customers in an open-ended interview to identify what they find enjoyable or encouraging about using your product. Are there any moments um, of delight or surprise? Is there anything they find particularly satisfying about using the product? Review the steps your customers take um, takes to use your product or service habitually. What outcome, um, so reward, alleviates the user's pain? Is the reward fulfilling yet leaves the user wanting more? Brainstorm three ways your product might be, uh, might heighten users' um, search for variable rewards using one, rewards of the tribe, gratification from others. Um, two, rewards of the hunt, material goods, money or information. And three, rewards of the self-mastery, completion, competency or consistency. Yes. Cool. So we're on to now step four of the hook cycle, which is investment. So there is one last step in the hook model that's critical for building habit forming technologies. Before users create the mental associations that activate their automatic behaviors, they must first invest in the product. Investments in a product create preferences because of their tendency to overvalue our work and be consistent with past behaviors and avoid cognitive dissonance. So the last step of the hook model is the investments phase, the point at which users are asked to do a bit of work. Here, users are prompted to put something of value into the system, which increases the likelihood of them, of them using the product and of successive passes through the hook cycle. Unlike in the action phase of the hook discussed in chapter three, investments are about the anticipation of longer rewards, not immediate gratification. In Twitter, for example, the investment comes in the form of following another user. There is no immediate reward for following someone, no stars or badges to affirm the action. Following is an investment in the service, service sorry, which increases the likelihood of the user checking Twitter in the future. Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's a bit like, I guess, in a way, is liking somebody's, you know, comment or post. Yeah. I guess you're not really, it's not really for yourself, is it? It's kind of... You're investing in the service to then, which would then give yeah. you better content because you've you've indicated <clears throat> them something you like, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I guess it's gonna it's especially with like a lot of apps today that are kind of have your personalized algorithms. It almost becomes a place where you know is going to be like for you, in a sense, yeah. right? Like um, 
home away from home. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Um, so there's, you know, that it's like comfortable. You're kind of like investing into another area where it's going to be presenting you stuff you want to see. Um, yeah. So changing attitude. So earlier in the summary, we referenced that the frequency of a new behavior is a leading factor in forming a new habit. And now we are introducing the second part, uh, second most important factor in habit formation, which is a change in the participant's attitude about the behavior. The commitments we make have powerful effects on us and play an important role in the things we do, the products we buy and the habits we form. The more users invest time and effort into a product or service, the more they value it. In fact, there's ample evidence to, to suggest that our labor leads to love. And I would say that, fucking hell, it's bright. Um, I would say that uh, this is very much the case. I, I remember him giving an example of like Facebook because like, you know, once you put all your photos on there, it's like it used to be a place where, you know, because you'd invested so much that you would come back to it. Um, you know, you've, uh, and it's nice to have, you know, a chronological um, display of, you know, when you've gone on holiday and all these kinds of things and obviously people can mm. interact. And so that leverages the social aspect of it. Um, but yeah, so you're kind of like investing and then that makes you want to, uh, makes you like it even more. So the more yeah. effort we put into something, the more likely we are to value it. We are more likely to be consistent with our past behaviors. And finally, we change our preferences to avoid cognitive dissonance. This is uh, straight out the book of influence by, uh, what do you call it, Robert Cialdini. We were doing all this stuff about, you know, uh, consistency bias and all that. So, yeah, if anybody's been listening yeah. from since then, that you would be familiar with this sort of ideas or these ideas. Um, so, yeah, now we've got the next stage, which is sort of examples of the investment. So investments that store value. So unlike physical goods in the real world, the software that runs our technology produces products can adapt itself to our needs so to become better of use the habit forming technology utilizes investments users make in the product to enhance the experience the stored value users put into the product increases the likelihood they will use it again in the future and these come in a variety of forms so first of all content every time uh, users of apple's itunes add a song to their collection they are strengthening ties to the service the songs on a playlist are an example of how content increases the value of a service i guess you say similar to you know, Spotify, you create playlists. It's, you know, one of the biggest changes or one of the biggest barriers to me moving to Apple Music would be having to re-like all the same songs, recreate all the same yeah. playlists. Um, like you said, re-uploading all your photos, like you were saying before. Um, although they tried to make it as easy as possible, it's still, you know, not perfect. Yeah. Um, then you've got here data. So information generated, collected or created by users are examples of stored value in the form of content, sometimes through users... Uh, sometimes, though, users invest in a service by either actively or passively adding their own personal data. So, for example, on LinkedIn, the user's online resume embodies the concept of data as stored value. Every time job seekers use a service, they are prompted to add more information. The company found that the more information users invest in the site, the more committed they became to it. And then the next one is followers. So investing and following the right people increases the value of the product by displaying more relevant and interesting content. It also tells uh, media companies like Twitter a lot about its users, which in turn improves the service overall. For the tweeter seeking followers, the more followers one has, the more valuable the service becomes as well. So content creators, uh, content creators on Twitter seek to reach as large an audience as possible. 
The mm. only way to legitimately acquire new followers is to send tweets others think are interesting enough to warrant following the sender. Therefore, to acquire more followers, content creators must invest in producing more and better tweets. The cycle increases the value of the service for both sides the more the service is used, which is quite interesting in itself because it's yeah. like the incentives are you know, aligned on both sides. Yeah, um, exactly. And then another store value is reputation. So reputation is a form of store, store value users can literally take to the bank on an online marketplace such as eBay, TaskRabbit, Yelp, and Airbnb, people with negative scores are treated very differently from those with good reputations. So reputation is a form of stored value that increases the likelihood of using a service. So reputation makes users, both buyers and sellers, more likely to stick with whichever service they've invested their efforts in to make a high, uh, a high quality score. Yeah. And then the last one here is skills. So in investing, I don't think this is an underappreciated one, to be honest, but investing time and effort into learning to use a product is a form of investment and stored value. Mm. Once a user has acquired a skill, using the service becomes easier and moves, uh, and moves them to the right, yeah, moves them to the right on the ability axis of the FOG behavior model. As FOG describes it, non-routine is a factor of simplicity and the more familiar behavior is, the more likely the user is to do it. So uh, once users have invested the time to acquire a skill, they're less likely to switch to a competing product. Yeah. Um, and that's I, just an important I, one. Yeah, I, I would say so. I would say like... like how to navigate is, social media apps, you know? Like if you know how to navigate the app, yeah. it becomes easier for you to do. We talked about Instagram. But I think also too, like, yeah. uh, think about like Notion, um, yeah. a bit of like a learning curve at the beginning. But once you're through it, okay, yeah, you've committed that. So exactly what it's saying here, like, you know, you've committed um, time and energy. And so now you've improved a skill. But also I think that there's like another like flip side to the coin there where others don't. And so that almost makes you feel a bit better that you're kind of, you know, you've improved a skill that not many people can do or those kinds of or or haven't right. So it like kind of puts you in the small percentile of people who can do that. Um, Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting as well, like, you know, for example, with video games, you have those, like, you know, the bits at the very beginning of the game where it's really boring, but it it introduces you to, like, the mechanics. So you played the Hogwarts Legacy recently, haven't you? Like, they go through teaching you all the way the game, you can do stuff in the game. Not a lot of businesses do that, especially if they're, like, have a really complex product. Then they they probably should spend more time on, like, the onboard, that's what they call it, like, customer onboarding. Onboarding Like, it's one of the biggest wins in my head. It's, like, if you could help people, because if your if your business really does a good job at solving a problem for somebody, and yeah. you're not making enough sales, it might be worth looking at how do people like start at, like interacting with what you offer. If that makes sense, so, like yeah, yeah. once they've signed up, how do they continue to act? Like Notion and that do okay jobs. I remember when I first joined up, they have like an example like database, but they really should be taking you through it. Like without they should, yeah. yeah you're not allowed to do anything else but do what they do so a yeah. bit like with um video games you can't just like quit the story and go do something else they like you you're yeah. forced to do the game mechanics um and it, you know i think companies can benefit but then there's also the argument for like for me i get if it is really obvious i get really impatient for having to do that yeah um, and i th- i think there's a fine line there because first of all you know if it's an onboarding system then you also want it to be easy because you want them to transition very seamlessly, right? If it's too difficult, then I'm going to just quit, especially if it's something that I'm not that invested in, right? So I've I've used a bunch of those like different habit apps and, you know, there's one, I, I think it's called Fabulous. 
And the onboarding system is really in depth. Like it takes a long time. But once you're on it, you've kind of invested, you've put more of your time and money, uh, time and energy into it. And so you're probably more likely to follow through. But that's if you last that onboarding system. Otherwise, there are other apps where it's like, done, you're on, you put in your habits and and you start. Um, So, yeah, I think it's definitely like a a fine line. Yeah. And like you just said, if it's too easy, then it's boring. You can have right. almost two options, right? To be fair, be like, this is the full, like, you could have like a full setup and like you yeah. kind of sell it to them. You're like, if you do this, it's spend 20 minutes of your time. The app will be much better for you if you're in a rush, yeah. two minutes, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. some some people do that now quite, you know, with their websites. They give you like two options. Like, do you want to do the long form or do you want to do the short form? So yeah. the red pill or the whatever or the, the blue pill. So like, yeah. pick, pick your poison. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, exactly. So on to the next part. So answer the following questions to brainstorm how you can apply the fourth step investment to your product or project. So review your flow. What bit of work are your users doing to increase their likelihood of returning? Brainstorm three ways to add small investments into your product um, to load the next trigger, store values, data, content, followers, reputations, or skills. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got the morality here. So the five fundamental questions for building effective hooks. What do users really want? What pain is your uh, product relieving? The internal trigger. Number two, what brings users to your service? Brackets, the external trigger. Three, what is the simplest action users take in anticipation of reward? And how can you simplify your product to make this action easier? Is the action step. Number four is, are users fulfilled by the reward yet left wanting more, which is the variable reward? And number five, what bit of work do users invest in your product? Does it load the next trigger and store value to improve the product with use? And that's the investment stage. So yeah, sorry, those, I, now I remember those questions were to like summarize the previous steps Yeah. Um, as like a sort of one one part framework. Yeah. Uh, we'll probably review that later as well. Um, and then the next stage we got here, the morality of the manipulation. Um, I don't really believe with this crass, like, you know, just creating of like, I, I don't know, like categories which just don't exist. But yeah. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember reading this through. Uh, yeah. I didn't take I was like, what am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what am I? Yeah. So the morality of manipulation. So to help you as a designer of habit forming technology, assess the morality behind how you manipulate others. It's helpful to determine which of the four categories your work fits into. Are you a facilitator, a peddler, entertainer, or dealer? So a facilitator is somebody who uses their own product and believes it can materially improve people's lives. They have the highest chance of success because they most closely understand the needs of their users. Then you have a peddler, so somebody who believes their product can materially improve people's lives, but do not use it themselves. They must be aware of the hubris and inauthenticity that comes from building solutions for people they do not understand firsthand. You have the entertainers. They use their product, but do not believe it can improve people's lives. They can be successful, but without making the lives of others better in some way, the entertainers' products often lack staying power. And the dealers neither use the product nor believe it can improve people's lives. They have the lowest chance of finding long-term success and often find themselves in morally precarious positions. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah i i would say i think the idea of a facilitator is good as in like you know it is a product that you yourself uses so that you can constantly have like feedback um 
and get into the minds of your users. I think that's important. Uh, but yeah. So yeah. how to apply the hook model. Um, and there are three steps here, um, but just a bit of an overview. So habit testing includes three steps, identify, codify, and modify. So first, dig into the data to identify how people are using the product. Next, codify these findings in search of habitual users to generate new hypotheses, study the actions and paths taken by devoted users. And then finally, modify the product to influence more users to follow the same path as your habitual users, and then evaluate results and continue, uh, continue to modify as needed. Building a habit-forming product is an iterative process and requires user behavior analysis and continuous experimentation. Uh, experimentation. Habit testing does not always require a live product. However, it can be difficult to draw clear conclusions without a comprehensive view of how people are using your system. The following steps assume you have a product, um, users, and meaningful data to explore. And I think this is quite important. And like a prime example are social media companies because what they essentially do, take Instagram, for example, they can change certain kind of formulas or equations or user interface or anything within certain like cohorts of people. So they can test oh, yeah. it on 50 million people over here and see how they respond to slight changes in color or like different text or font or, you know, a different button or whatnot. And they can constantly get feedback while still being able to integrate it into the like normal process. That, yeah. That they, did, they did the, um, they did the, you know, the removing of the likes. I think they did it like in America. Mm, first yeah, or something, yeah. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So they constantly have, they know what their habit, uh, their habitual users like, but then they can introduce kind of like experiments with certain cohorts to see um, whether it works or not, uh, whether people um, uh, buy it more or not. Um, So, yeah, so step one, identify. So the initial question for habit testing is who are the product's habitual users? Remember, the more frequently your product is used, the more likely it is to form a user habit. First, define what it means to be a a devoted user. How often should one use your product? The answer to this question is very important and can widely change your perspective. Publicly available data data from similar products or solutions can help define your user and engagement targets. If data are not available, educated assumptions must be made, but realistic and honest ones. Once you know how often users should use your product, dig into the numbers to identify how many um, and which type of users meet this threshold. So that makes a lot of sense. Essentially, you're just looking through all your sample data and establishing which ones meet your habitual criteria. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then step two, so we got, we're going from obviously identifying the user base to codifying it. So let's say that now you've identified a few users who meet the criteria of habitual users. Yeah, how many such users are enough? So his rule of thumb is 5%. Though your rate of active users would need to be much higher to sustain a business, this is a good initial benchmark. However, if at least 5% of your users don't find your product valuable enough to use it as much as you predicted they would, you may have a problem. So codifying is the uh, codifying the habit path. Users will interact your pro- uh, with your product in slightly different ways, even if you have a standard user flow. The way users engage with your product creates a unique fingerprint. So where users are coming from, decisions made when registering, and the number of friends using the service are just a few of the behaviors that can help create a re- recognizable path. So you need to sift through the data to determine if similarities emerge. 
So you are looking here for a habit path, which is a series of similar actions shared by most of your loyal users. So this kind of makes sense. The first step was yeah. you know, find out who your users are. And the second step is codifying how they actually behave on your app. You know, it's all good saying, you know, this is how they should act. But you, if you find out that people are like doing 90% of the form, then quitting and then reloading the app because it, it bypasses away, that's just pretty yeah. they can't be bothered to do the form, right? Stuff like that, <laughs> that you're looking for here. Um, yeah no, exactly um so yeah that's a pretty important step i'd say and then on to the third step so this is modify so armed with new insights it is important it is time to revisit your product and identify ways to nudge new users down the same habit path taken by devotees um this may include an update to the registration funnel content changes feature removal or increased emphasis on an existing feature Twitter used the insights gained from the previous step to modify its onboarding process, encouraging new users to immediately begin following others. Because like we said, you know, once you start to invest in like following other people, it becomes more of an enjoyable experience. And so people are more likely to stay. Um, Habit testing is a continual process you can implement with every new feature and product iteration. Tracking users by cohort and comparing their activity with that of habitual users should guide how products evolve and improve. Yeah, which is important. Like, you know, if you can see your comparison rate, so, you know, how more people are starting to go down your habit path, then you can see whether, you know, what you're modifying is improving um, that rate. So, yeah, I think those three points were really important, actually. Um, I thought they were really insightful. Practical way of applying, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, it was very, you know, you identify, codify, and then modify. It kind of, it does, it does remind you a bit of like a problem-solving framework, you know, identify the yeah. problem and then try and write out what it exactly is, so codifying it, and then modifying what you think, you know, could help alleviate it, right? It's very exactly. similar to that. Yeah. Um, so this very last section we got here, which is just a bit of, you know, how to find opportunities for, you know, creating technological solutions to things. So the first one is scratch your own itch. I've heard this one so many times before from people like Tim Ferriss. Yeah. And this is the yeah. idea of, you know, building something for yourself first and foremost, because you are the proof there is a market of at least one. Um, yeah. So this is creating a product that the designer uses and believes materially improves people's lives, increasing, which increases the odds of delivering something people want. Therefore, the first place for the entrepreneur or designer to look for new opportunities is in the mirror. So Paul Graham advises entrepreneurs to leave the sexy sounding business ideas behind and instead build for their own needs. Instead of asking, what problem should I solve? Ask, what problem do I wish someone else would solve for me? Um, studying your own needs can lead to remarkable discoveries and new ideas because the designer always has a direct line to at least one user, him or herself. Uh, a founder scratching his own itch as he used existing solutions, he recognized a discrepancy in what they offered and the solution he needed. Um, and you can identify where steps could be removed from the other products you've used and build a simpler way to get the job done. So careful introspection can uncover opportunities for building habit-forming products. I mean, yeah. you could argue the stuff we've been doing with Notion is to a degree uh, that, you know, we try to be building our fitness uh, database slash system that will scratch our own itch, which fits what yeah. we wanted to do to see, you know, to show us the things we want to see, et cetera, right? And that's, I feel like, the power with uh, the reason Notion does so well is it allows people to build solutions for themselves, you know, personally exactly. around yeah. data management. I think even wise words, right? Like, realistically, we were reading books and then we started making notes and we kind of, it's like, Oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was a book summary like website or whatnot there are. And then, you know, 
it wasn't ideal. So then we created our own. And then we started to yeah. tweak things that we wanted. Like all the things that we create with wise words, it's because, oh, it would be amazing to have that, right? Yeah. I would love that. It's almost for yeah. you first and foremost. And then obviously it like benefits other people who are in line with your way of thinking. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think yeah, the best yeah. ideas of the best entrepreneurs usually come from that sort of like ilk. Like I'm going to solve 100%. my own problem first and then assume that people yeah. are similar to me. Well, because you're invested, right? Like think about it. If, if, if what is it? It's like nine out of 10 business ideas don't work or something like that yeah i can't remember what the statistic is, no, it is it's but then like yeah uh, which means that you know for those people who normally do succeed it's probably because they've got something other than just like monetary you know motivation um to follow through and it's like if you care about something you're invested you've got more of your like actual you know personality in it um mm. then you're probably more likely to follow through beyond others um Okay, so on to the next point. So observe your behavior. So as you go about your day, ask yourself why you do or do not do certain things and how those tasks could be made easier or more rewarding. Observing your own behavior can inspire the next habit-forming product or inform a breakthrough improvement to an existing solution. And we've kind of touched on this in multiple. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, uh, Solution. (laughs) Solucio. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> spell. Yeah. Now we've touched on this multiple times with the idea of like um atomic habits, you know, pointing and calling, basically like going throughout the week and trying to figure out what kind of behaviors you engage in so you can kind of see which habits maybe you engage in and which ones. So in this scenario, how you can make that better, improve that, maybe like speed yeah. it up, reduce I'll, the steps. I'll- I'll give you um, a good example of what, one of these as well was um, before the Walkman and the MP3 player, what they witnessed was people acting in a way where they would take a big boombox or speaker to a beach. Yeah, yeah. And then they were like, because of that, they showed people wanted music on the go. So they created, yeah, yeah. they were like, oh, there's obviously a demand for people to do that. I got it. The word compensatory behavior. When people use yeah. something or a product in a way that's not what it was meant for, but it indicates yeah. that there's a use for it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah that's very original, important. Like, yeah. The original like MP3 idea came from people carrying big speakers around, and be like, okay, people yeah. want music that's portable, <laughs> which is interesting. I like that. Compensatory um, behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, and funny enough, this actually links technically the next one. So it's looking for new technologies. So wherever new technologies suddenly make a behavior easier, new possibilities are born. So an example would be new technologies allowed new like data to be stored in smaller and smaller microchips. Therefore, mm-hmm. it allowed data to be stored in a small thing for many songs to be compacted into like you know like a like an iPod or an MP3. Yeah, and that yeah. allowed the ability for you to then do that. So look for technologies that allow you to do the things that in the past weren't you know easy to do or possible yeah yeah um and then this last bit so interface change so technological changes often create opportunities to build new hooks however sometimes no technology change is required many companies have found success in driving new habit formation by identifying how changing user interactions can create new routines um that's an interesting point Changes in interface suddenly make all sorts of behaviors easier. Subsequently, when the effort required to accomplish an action decreases, usage tends to explode. Um, So just looking at how, you know, new technology impacts behavior and then looking at those new behaviors and seeing if there's, you know, opportunities there. I mean, to be honest, there's a few really good examples of interface change that I could think of. So one would be um, using stuff like Go Compare. So, 
the data exists, but they make an interface where you just plug in the product you want and it gives you all the different, you know, places you can buy it. Yeah. Another example would be selling your car. So like we buy any car.com. The fact that their interface is literally just put your license plate in and it'll give you a cost, rough cost for your price, yeah, yeah. like for your car. Yeah. Like you, that information exists elsewhere, but they've created a user interface where it's so simple to do. So instead of like mm-hmm. searching on AutoTrader, like how much is my car worth, blah, 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 they can kind of give you something immediately up front. And that's for me yeah. what the biggest change of in- user interface changes are. And it's the same with like Notion to a degree. We are just manipulating data and making it easier to access or yeah. easier for us to access. So by making the interface easier to use, you know, it increases people's use of it. Yep. Um, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. that is hooked. Um, I think it was really interesting just to kind of apply a lot of these like habit um, formation tactics to building something um yeah it's a real life business and being, ideas and stuff yeah, yeah and creator. being like a creator rather than like the actual user like obviously mm-hmm. like you know you are a user in it to a degree especially if you're like a facilitator but um it's just interesting being on the other side of the coin um and looking at and implementing these techniques um so that kind of concludes habits yeah. um if you want to go and check out the actionable steps from this book summary, head on over to wisewords.blog and it'll be waiting for you. Um, yes. So next week we will be doing exercised. Um, by I think that's going to be the first Daniel one. Yeah. I think that's the first. And yeah, that's going to yeah. kind of introduce us to the, um, and you to the whole like kind of fitness industry um, or area field the topic um, yeah. subject um and then we're going to go into a bunch of others and like little subfields subtopics um so yeah make sure to stay tuned for that we've got a bunch on the way so um exciting times but yeah until then i think that's i think that's a wrap that's a wrap that's a wrap done bye that was quite a long one Hey guys, well there you have it. We hope you enjoyed that book summary. Now we know it can be a lot to take in all at once, so if you want to be able to read this in a more palatable size, or you want to be able to implement any of those key actionable ideas that we were talking about in this episode, head on over to our website at wisewords.blog where the book summary will be waiting for you. Also, don't forget to check out our socials as we consistently upload the key ideas, benefits and actionable ideas from all the books that we read. The links to those will be in the description below. Now, we want to be able to get you the best content in a way that's really easy to understand, but we need your help. Your opinion matters. So you are our feedback mechanism. And with those quick actions, whether that's leaving us a like or a dislike, commenting in the comment section below or subscribing to our channel, all of those help us gauge what we're doing well and how to improve on our method of delivery. So if you have any thoughts on the matter, don't hesitate to act. It takes less than 10 seconds and it really helps us out. But with all that being said, Until next time, stay wise.